cut right to the chase, people. Fabio Di Gian Antonio was robbed. Welcome yes. to a very angry bike live. Let's go! Yeah, this is episode 61 of Bike Live as we look back on a dramatic French Grand Prix weekend where chaos reigned in Moto3. Um, and Race Direction really were the winners rather than the viewers. Um, as a, a first winner, a first time winner, was robbed of his victory, handing the victory to another first time winner who was probably as shocked as we all were. Uh, we'll tell you the full story of that crazy Moto3 race, which, Moto3 race, which saw... Uh, Jakob Kornfeld go viral um, and uh, Grassini go crazy and name their rider in their post-race press release the moral winner, even if it wasn't the actual winner um, after the race. Um, we'll talk about all of that, as well as all of the action from MotoGP. As Mark Marquez, is it even this early to say that he's got one hand on the 2018 title? Um, we'll talk about all of that as he took his third consecutive victory to move 36 points clear uh, at the top of the World Championship after just five rounds. Um, whilst 100,000 French hearts were broken by Joan Zarco's mid-race crash. We'll also talk about Francesco Bagnaia's brilliant Moto2 victory. Stop me if you've heard that one before. And we will look ahead to this weekend. It is the British round of the World Superbike Championship, the BSB Invasion, as I'm calling it. Uh, and we'll look ahead to that in the company of the voice of the sport, Greg Haynes, um, who joins us later in the show. Uh, join me once again um, at the start of what's quite a big weekend um, for Motorsport 101. Is Andre Harrison. Welcome, Dre. This job's going to break me one of these days, but it will not be today. <laughs> uh, yes, this is the start of, of what's going to be an absolutely heat weekend for yours truly. I'm sure we'll get into the, into the nitty-gritty as to why that is um, very shortly. But, uh, yeah, uh, back on Bike Live, and I'm firmly in the camp that Fabio DG Antonio got completely shafted. Um, yes, this, this is not going to be a fun uh, segment to go through. But uh, spoiler alert, we're doing Moto3 first, so that mm. kind of says it all, really. Yeah, hashtag justice for DG. Um, but, yeah, we will, we will go through all of that um, very, very shortly. Before that, though... Um, let's fill you in on the various places you can find us. Um, Facebook.com forward slash Motorsport 101. Um, be sure to like us on there. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Motorsport underscore 101, um, where you'll be able to find the very creative subtitle we've come up with for this year's Day of Classics. More on that in a second. Um, yes. YouTube is the place where you'll be able to watch it, incidentally. YouTube.com forward slash Motorsport 101. Uh, make sure you subscribe on there and set yourself up for the alert so you know when our Day of Classics coverage starts. Um, with both Formula 1 and IndyCar on Sunday covered. It's the jewel in the crown uh, of both series. Um, if you like us so much that you want to back us financially and earn yourself early access to both our weekly shows, um, then Patreon is the place to go. Patreon.com forward slash Motorsport 101. If you back us at the $5 level, you'll get these podcasts earlier than everyone else. If you back us at the $10 level, you will be able to listen in live as these shows are recorded because you'll have access to our Discord server. Um, and first of all, Dre... Um, Episode 140 um, is, well, by the time you hear this show, it will be live. Um, Indeed. A, a show that um, was, I'm imagining from your point of view, a difficult one to record. <laughs> James Hinchcliffe got bumped. I just, it breaks my heart as a deputy mayor of Hinchtown. Um, yeah, it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't the, the easiest weekend to say the least. Um 
Yeah, uh, you've probably been, you know you're probably well aware of it by now. Hinchcliffe and Pippa Man, who's again we 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 love on the show, got bumped, and uh, it was a bummer to say the least. We we broke down all of the bump day action. Yeah, if you, um, if you listen to the start of the show, you'll hear how RJ unwittingly called it. It's a beautiful intro. It's one of my favourites in the 140 shows we've done. I have to say that one's right up there. So well played, editor. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, say, I I only edited it. I did not come up with the idea. Shout out to Zoe for that. Yeah, well, well played, Zoe. Um, well played indeed. Um, evil, evil. <laughs> um, <but> some... <laughs> that was not my idea. I take no credit for this. Um, but yes, all the Monday action, you know, the the final pandemonium of the last thirty-five minutes or so was, uh, and just how many capital locks related tweets I had in the last hour of Monday itself. <laughs> Um, the nature of the bump itself, you know, the nature of trying to buy out another potential seat for Hinch, which Hinch gave up on on, on Friday. Um, just the sheer class the man's handled it with, quite frankly. He's, he was out there today as a recording this with a T-shirt gun with fans on carb day and taking part in the pit stop contest. Um, he's a better man than me, because if it was me, I'd be at home in the style of the Nutty Professor eating a giant tub of ice cream, mm. uh, just getting over like, like, like a jilted ex-girlfriend. Um, yeah, um, he's handled it with, 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 with sheer class. So all of the Monday action, um, the, oh, uh, the, uh, the rundown of the grid, uh, who we think going to win uh bet the house on simon pagino if you ask me um and also all of the action from the berlin epre and shout out to the new cesaro section formerly known as the, the section with the green flags cheering for daniel apt um it's as it's as orchestrated as it sounds quite frankly um so all of that in episode 140 check it out now if you haven't already yeah and um if you haven't already you've probably just about got time between now and the day of classics coverage beginning um, we don't quite know at this stage when this podcast goes up, but it'll probably be at some stage on Sunday um, mm-hmm. where you'll be able to um, listen to Bike Live. And as mentioned, it is Day of Classics 3, dot, 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 the third one. Um, hey! Because, catchy uh, name. Uh, yeah, catchy name. Um, we were probably going to go for some sort of Hinchtown reference, but I'm probably pretty sure Dre had the veto on that one. Um, oh, I was not letting that one fly after last week. No. <laughs> uh, so, um, yeah, if anything... Um, if we hadn't already used it on a previous episode, Dave Classics 3, Are You Okay? Uh, would have probably been the uh, the title we'd have gone with. Um, but uh, but yeah, it, it is coming uh, this Sunday, or very, very so- shortly by the time you listen to this. Even if you listen to this after it's happened, you'll still be able to go and watch it on YouTube. I'm sure it was a hoot. Um, because the Monaco <laughs> Grand Prix and the 102nd Indianapolis 500 both taking place on Sunday. If you've ever listened to Day of Classics before... Um, it does have a history for, for some rather magic moments, particularly if Alexander Rossi's involved. Um, and, <laughs> and, and Dre, um, you've been a part of both of these dead classics. I never have been, but I have watched them before. Um, for the listeners that are listening, and obviously for you as a part of it, it's a hell of a lot of mm. fun. Oh dear God, it's it, it's it's pandemonium. Um, last year was ridiculous. The first time we did this was completely ridiculous. Um, <laughs> It's still, um, it's still like deeply in, in, engraved into the folklore of Motorsport 101. Was uh, uh, Chris Cook the, in the infamous tweet of, "Oh, there's no way Rossi's going to win," and then of course he goes on to win in epic fuel-saving fashion. Um, so, uh, do you reckon he's going to yeah, be brave enough fun. to tweet that again this weekend, given he's starting on the back row? He's the favourite, though. Hey. <laughs> like, Alex Rossi's bookie's favourite. He's seventeen to two to win the whole thing. I was like, what? <laughs> like, 
I don't know how, I don't know why, but Alex Rossi is favourite at 17 to 2. Do not ask me why. Yeah. But anyway, as I was saying, yeah, like we've had some epic moments. Cook hijacked the Indy 500 commentary at the end of last year as Takuma Sato basically broke the internet and made sure I could never use our famous catchphrase ever again. Thanks a bunch, Takuma, um, <laughs> on that one as he narrowly beat Helio last year. Oh, and we do Monaco too. That's, that, that, that's a thing. We, like, we we do the Monaco Grand Prix. We, we, like, we have to go through it. Um, so, yeah, it's basically alternative commentary. It's a watch party um, for both both of the quote-unquote classic races um, of, of Classics Weekend, the Monaco Grand Prix and the Inter 500. There'll be two separate live streams for this live on Sunday on our YouTube page, youtube.com forward slash motorsport101. Sadly, I will not be there for the Monaco Grand Prix, probably for the best, um, <laughs> as Daniel Ricciardo takes off into the distance, probably. Um, but I will be there for the Indy 500. So um, if, if you're looking forward to me personally, um, you can, I'll be in the second half, um, probably crying into, into a bowl of ice cream, thinking, where's Hitchcliffe? Um, but uh, it should be a fun time indeed. Remember, that's youtube.com forward slash motorsport101. Uh, 140, um, that'll be tomorrow afternoon, so half an hour before lights out um, for the first stream on that. I think the 500 itself takes place at half four, I want to say, British time. So, again, probably about four o'clock in the afternoon will be up for part two of that. So, yeah, check it out already. I will be there for the sure king rj will be there as well we're gonna get the lineups confirmed tonight most likely so keep half an eye on that and uh yeah uh hope you enjoyed day classics free the third one uh tomorrow on youtube yeah absolutely it's gonna be a lot of fun and as i say if you're listening to this podcast bike live after uh day classics has taken place you will be able to still watch them back in full um Indeed. because they'll go up on youtube um after they have happened um, right then, let's uh, focus on what happened last weekend at the venue of the other classic race in the motorsport calendar. This perhaps was a classic of a different kind, though, to take place at Le Mans. Um, this one didn't take place around the Circuit de la Sarthe. It was on the Bugatti circuit, but all hell broke loose in Moto3, um, which is where we're starting. Um, a chaotic race, a controversial race, uh, and a race that left us probably all universally fuming afterwards. Um Let's let's get into the circumstances of it. And uh, the final lap um, was really where it all took place, or was where it all started to unfold. Um, and let's start with the positive, I suppose, Dre, um, because that Moto3 race, uh, and just as well for race direction, I suppose, went viral for a very, very different reason um, to the one that most of us were talking about. It went viral because of an extraordinary piece of motorcycle control by Jakob Kornfeil. Um, going on to the final lap, Anayat Bastianini crashes going around the final corner uh, with Jakob Kornfile right behind him. Um, the layout-powered Honda goes into the gravel trap. Kornfile is running right directly into it. And rather than try and go around it, he basically rides straight over the middle of the bike, vaults over it, goes yep. at least a couple of feet into the air, and somehow lands on both wheels and continues off into the final lap. Um <laughs> We've seen we've seen some crazy saves in the past in this class. Oh. We've seen Nicky Ayo in the past basically sitting alongside his bike as it rolls towards the line. But have you ever seen anything quite like that? Um, who turned it into a motocross race on the final lap? That's what I want to know. Um, that was the most ridiculous bit of bike control I think I have ever seen. That is... I mean, when Mark Marquez is on Instagram saying that was the best save he's ever seen, when Mark Marquez... Yeah, he does a save when he sees one. Oh, God, my... Oh, goodness gracious me. That was 
utterly unbelievable. Um, it's magic from Cornfall. Like, it's you think about it, of all the things that had to happen for this to be perfect, the bike's gone down. Jakob has obviously been pushed out wide. He can't see it coming. He, he obviously has hit Bastianini's bike. He's not just lobbed over the front of it. He's launched off the top of the side pod. He's able to tuck in the front. And he's able to keep it upright like he's doing a motocross jump. Again, I don't know what he was thinking yeah, at King's the time. In real time. on the pegs. <laughs> Get both his feet on the pegs. He's landed it back wheel first. Like it's a completely clean landing. He hasn't fallen off the bike, and he's kept his foot in it, and he's kept going. It's it's utterly, utterly insane. I I have never seen anything like it, and it's quite rightly gone viral. It was even picked up by the by US Sports Center um, yeah. in, on ESPN. So that like ESPN never covers bike racing. So. The fact that one of their top 10 plays was Jakob Kornfile's unbelievable save goes to show you that uh, uh, it had truly gone viral. So uh, an utterly magnificent bit of bit of work from Jakob Kornfile. Pro- up there with Marquez at Valencia last year is the greatest save I've ever seen. Um, yeah, and, and, and the, some of the greatest quotes I've ever seen as well when he spoke afterwards. This is on uh, MotoGP's of his whole website um, where he says, I just saw the bike in front of me so I could make the perfect jump and I just said, okay, that's just like motocross training. Um, I just opened the gas and tried in the air and tried to survive uh, and stay on the bike. When I landed, it was very soft into the gravel. The problem was that when I was in the air, my airbag went off and that made me a bit oh, uncomfortable. Lord. I don't know how I saved it. In my mind, there was only one sentence, keep the gas. Uh, because when you land in motocross, always need to have the throttle open and that's what I did. This is the funny bit though. After the finish line, I opened my leather suit. I gave my chest protector to the marshals on the finish straight and tried to stretch a little bit. The only problem was my balls, but my penis hurt a lot on the last lap. <laughs> His words, ladies Clearly. and gentlemen, not mine. Clearly, they had turned into the size of watermelons yeah. by the time had finished. Yeah, that, that, that was the one thing I hadn't thought of. But uh, yeah, when, when thinking about it, that heavy landing must have uh, really hurt him in a very tender oh. part of his body. Um, so, um, so fair play to Jakob Kornfile for uh, that, that is going above and beyond the call of duty um, in a Moto3 yep. race. Um, but it, it, it almost gets forgotten that in the circumstances of that race, Jakob Kornfile was already riding with a time penalty. Um, and this is where it kind of gets confusing, bordering on irritating, bordering on infuriating. Jakob Kornfile mm. earlier in the race had shortcutted the Shimano Buff chicane. It's turn 10, I want to say, off the top of my head, um, yeah. at Le Mans. Um, having nearly ran into another rider early on in the race, I think it was Bezeki that he nearly got made contact with, went across the chicane um, and was given a 1.8 second penalty um, as a result of that. Um, uh, 1.3 second penalty, should I say. Um, now, Nicolo Antonelli, who was also in this leading group, he shortcutted the Dunlop chicane um, elsewhere in the race. So that's the chicane at the start of the lap, turn three and four, uh, and was given uh, 1.8 seconds. These were both penalties that were to be added to the rider's time post-race. Um, so they were in the leading group, but they kind of weren't because they were essentially a second and a half and, and change behind. Um, now, Fabio Di Antonio also went across the Shimano Bove chicane with a couple of laps to go, kept going. They, they didn't lose a position, didn't really gain one. Um, and... We kind of thought nothing of it at the time. Now, on the final lap, Dijan Antonio is running third. He overtakes his teammate, Jorge Martin, um, with a couple of corners to go. And then into the very final double right-hander, goes up the inside of race leader Marco Bezzecchi. Bezzecchi and Martin crash into each other. We'll cover that in a second. Um, but Dijan Antonio goes on to win the race. Yeah. Or so we thought. As a result, after the race, 
as a result of this shortcutting at the Shimano Borough chicane, Dijan Antonio is given not a 1.3 seconds, not a 1.8 seconds, but a three-second time penalty, which relegated him all the way down to fourth position in the final result. Um, we'll tell you who inherited the win in a minute. Um, but uh, Dijan Antonio, understandably, was absolutely devastated post-race. Um, having, having, He was in tears, having lost his first win of his career. And boy, he's come close on so many occasions already to his first win. Um, but there, there are so many layers to this, so many sort of uh, angles to, to come out from this, Dre. But there were three post-race penalties for three very, very similar offences, i.e. corner cutting at chicanes, and the three wildly varying penalties. And I'm struggling to understand the science or the logic behind any of them. Yeah. Um, this, to, to put it into some context, this goes back to last year at Cota in the MotoGP race when Valentino Rossi and Johan Zarco had a fight. I think it was Rossi who got a 0.4 of a second time penalty. Um, this whole rule was brought in because they didn't want the drop one position rule to come into play anymore because we saw a couple of examples in the past, like Jonas Volger in Moto2 when he was told to position dot 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 but the next guy was seven seconds down the road it was it was completely unfair the punishment often didn't fit the crime and the context of a position drop um isn't necessarily you know consistent as, as the race goes on so they had to come up with a different solution the riders asked for it and we got this instead as time penalties which in theory makes sense the problem is is that they leave a bit of taste in the mouth um because the, most of the time they're given out post race it can often suck the enjoyment. His first win, and then you find out five minutes later he's been given a three-second penalty, and it just sucks the enjoyment out of it. It's like, oh, oh, so Arenas has won then. Oh, great. What do you mean it was a three-second penalty? Um, so yeah, it was. It was for me. It was awful. Um, and like, I, what I want to know from race direction is how they're coming to these numbers. I would like some clarification and some context as to where they're getting 1.3 for Because at least final. with Valentino Rossi's in Cota, they were able to explain he gained 0. 0.3, 0. 0.4 of a second through that sector, so that was his right. penalty. Right. So, then, you know, if, if, if it is measured on, you know, estimated time gained, then fine, just say that. If, if, if you thought that's how much he's gained from doing it, then fair enough. Like, I, I would completely understand that. Um, Rossi's penalty in that context made perfect sense. He did gain about 0.4 of a second from cutting that corner, and that was what he was punished. Fine. No problem with that. Um, but there was no clarification, no context here, and we have three different penalties with three different times attached to them with no explanation as to how they'd come to those times. And when you're leaving fans in the dark like that, we're going to naturally ask questions. Um, so for, for, for the race to play out how it did... Um, Especially in the case of DG. DG's penalty, I think, was total horseshit. Um, I think he was pushed out wide by Bozeki at turn 10. He had to go across the corner, otherwise he would have forced contact, which is, according to the stewards, is now like the number one irrehensible crime now in bike racing. You can't contact another guy now, otherwise you're going to get the book thrown at you. So now he has to cut the chicane for safety reasons. He's slotted back in. He's not gained anything position-wise. I don't think he's gained very much at all time-wise um, as a result of doing it. And as a result, he's been given a three-second penalty. That's not only just taken the win off him. He's dropped him off, off the podium. He's finished fourth now with the post-race penalty taken into account. And uh, they released the clip of what he got the three seconds for. 
and on, on MotoGP's Twitter page, which I think is not very helpful, was it because it kind of just throws race direction further under the bus, if you ask me. But hey, that's MotoGP social media for you. But um, looking at the clip, I can't see where he's gained anything near three seconds. I think it was a terrible decision from race direction. You, you take a, a, a win out of a guy's hands I think, for, for doing the right thing and taking evasive action um, in a dangerous situation, potentially. And now you've 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 robbed him of his of his deserved and hard earned first victory. I think it was a terrible decision. This is I mean this is no disrespect to the man who benefited from this result or any of the guys who benefited from it because then ultimately they rode their own race and, and and that's not their fault at all. But unfortunately, I, I think it's a terrible decision. I think it takes the enjoyment out of it for the fans. Um, and I think without context or clarification as to what's happened, I think they've handled it very badly. Yeah, I agree. And and when you look at, at timing screens, because while you were talking there, I was I was rewinding back through the race, and the the one one thing that I hadn't even realised now that angers me is this incident, the corner cutting, took place on lap seventeen out of twenty two. There were six laps to go um, when right. this happened, so it wasn't like like we could understand if this had happened on the very last lap, they had to do something post race, but. This was with six laps to go, so they had plenty of time to try and work this out. And if I'm going through the lap chart, did Gian Antonio through that sector, um, because you can easily find the lap that he gets um, the, the offences on, because right. the lap is greyed out on the time charts, because essentially that lap gets deleted, um, as it right. would in a qualifying session. Um, his sector three time, which is where that corner is, was 29.1 seconds, um, which is absolutely no different to his T3 time for the rest of the race. He did a 29.0 on the next lap, 29.1 the lap after that, 29.1 on lap 20, 29.3 on lap 21, 29.1 on the final lap. Um, so in terms of pure lap time, that sector, that wasn't his fastest third sector of the race. Um, his fastest third sector of the race was on lap seven. Um, so I'm struggling to even find how he even gained time. And he certainly didn't gain a position. Um, because he was he was racing corn file when he went off the track and he came back on just in front of corn file. Um, so there, were, there was no time gain involved in this. And I totally understand. I mean, I, like you, I don't like it when penalties are handed post-race to change result, but sometimes they're unavoidable. Like, yeah, when, you got your choice. When, when a rider breaks a rule, he needs to be punished for it. But um, the way I see it, uh, and, I, and this perhaps shouldn't really come into the into the thinking because if a rider breaks a rule, he should be penalised. But I don't think this was a penalty that needed handing out. This was this is one of those where you know sometimes in races, and I, th- I think of this in football as well, where sometimes players get red cards. And um, I remember one earlier this season where the commentator said the referee didn't have to give him a red card for that. No one in the stadium was calling for a red card for that. And right. in this race, absolutely nobody watching that race was calling for any kind of penalty for what Fabio Di Gianantonio did at all. No, no. Um, I think you're completely right. I think this is I think this is what we would call a common sense sort of situation here where, yeah, like in, in, in a football match, you don't really want to send the guy off in the first 15, 20 minutes, even if the tackle is really bad, because you know that it's going to have a dramatic impact on the game. And I've, I believe there is such a thing as a spirit of the rules in some cases, where I think sometimes... It's probably for the best if you turn a blind eye, um, and the, you know you, you kind of let bygones be bygones. I don't. There was nobody out here saying, "Yeah, DJ should have gotten a penalty for that," or whatever. Like there was, there was bigger fish to fry in the context of that race, and I, I don't think anybody was calling for a penalty. So, yeah, I completely agree with that sentiment. In that, like, 
Gigi, Gigi's race did not gain from that corner cut, not in the slightest. Um, if if you would have, if, if MotoGP had not even clip out on Twitter, I don't think people would have even realised he'd done it in the first place, um, unless it was on the hard camera during the race. So I don't know for sure, but I, I just don't, I just don't get it. I don't get the justification for this. There is a justification. They've just done it. Like they've, they've not explained it. And they're not saying any context to why that is. Uh, and it, it just goes to show you again, yet more MotoGP stewarding inconsistency. We've talked about this earlier in the season. We've talked about it a lot during Argentina about how you know you 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 want like where's the justification for this? Why did it take you three hours to decide Marquez clearly impeded Maverick Vinales at Cota? Um, why did you yank in a Spagaro and looty them for sake of consistency? Um, wh- why did it take you three hours to decide Marquez had impeded Maverick Vinales? Well, at the same time. Um, on the same token, it took you five minutes to decide that DG cut a corner and you're giving him a three-second time penalty. How did he get to the three seconds? What was the justification for it? What was the method? Well, where is it in the rule book that you can do that? So, like, I, I just don't understand I don't understand what race direction are doing on this one. I know they've wanted to, to have a crackdown on this, but this is draconian. This is going too far the other way. Um, I don't want to be watching a Moto free race on a regular basis, sitting down there thinking, is this result going to stand when they cross the line? Yeah, Mugello is going to be beyond confusing, isn't it? Because that race is probably going to have a 15, it's going to have a 15, 20 rider leading group, as it always does around Mugello. Um, Yet we're going to be watching that race thinking, hmm, well, the guys in third, sixth, ninth, twelfth, and fifteenth, they've all got different time penalties. It'll just make the race unwatchable. Um, Mm -hmm. And and that will be my concern going forward on this. And yeah, in terms of the figure handed out, Dijan Antonio actually on the road won the race by 1.1 seconds. Um, 1.189 seconds um, over Arenas. Um, and was basically given a time penalty that would have knocked him not only off the win, but off the podium. Um, and he was given a differing time penalty to Confile for cutting the exact same corner in virtually identical circumstances. Which again makes no sense. Um, you know, how does one penalty amount to 1.7 seconds more than the other does? Um, it just makes zero yeah. sense. So so if you look at the outright lap charts, Dijan Antonio wins by 1.1 seconds from Arenas, um, with Mino in third, 1.3 off the lead, Antonelli fourth, 1.6 off the lead, and Ramirez fifth, 1.8 off the lead. Remember, folks, Antonelli also had a 1.8 second penalty for his previous incident. So we ended up with Antonelli pulling up in part Ferme, thinking he'd finished third, but he gets yanked out of there because he's got a penalty. And Marcos Ramirez, who was fifth on the road over the line, suddenly has to walk his way back into part Fermi because he's actually finished third. Um, right. And, and it, it was just, it was so unnecessarily confusing um, that, again, I think race direction basically made sort of judgments that they didn't really need to make. Um, so the consistency is called into question on this. And I think from our point of view, Dre, I think we both agree that abusing track limits is something that race direction needs to clamp down on. Um, I think, I think, I don't think any of us are, are, are debating that. Um, but this was draconian because what was, what was notable from our watching of the race now and the more we look back on it since is that especially in Dijon Antonio's case, it wasn't like he was a repeat offender. It wasn't like he was cutting the same corner lap after lap or abusing track limits lap after lap. That was the first and last time he cut that chicane in the entire Grand Prix. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I mean, when we talked about this before on the air, we, I, I said it reminded me, I, I think a better solution would be to go down the road of the F1 video game series where 
if you play on normal rules of in regards to corner cutting, they'll warn you like three or four times before they actually give you a penalty for for cutting the corner or for you know abusing track limits or whatnot. Same same ball game essentially. Um, and why couldn't that have worked here? Like why like race direction can put messages on the dashboard just like the teams can. So yeah. why can't they say it's like our touring cars where they put out the black and white flag, the driving standards yeah. flag for drivers to say you're on your last warning. They could easily put on Dijantonio's dashboard something to the effect of one more corner cut, you get a penalty. Yeah. Because then, then, then at least you're yeah. building in provisions for a rider who either is forced off or accidentally goes through there. Yeah, at, at, at least you can say at that point, it's like, well, we warned him, and no one can argue with you on that. It looks like, okay, okay. You can just put on the dashboard, warning, corner cutting, and, and then you can tell him in race direction, if we have to warn you twice, the third time will be a penalty. And I don't think anybody could argue with that, but DJ does it one time, and again, not even his fault, but for a first offence, he's given a three-second time penalty, which in the context of a Moto3 race is a huge amount of time. Um, which took him from first to fourth in this context. And it would have been worse if it had it not been for other penalties in, in the top tier field, like with Cornfine and Antonetti, who originally was going to finish in third. Um, so I think, that was a, I think that was, again, just poor stewarding across the board. Like, these riders aren't going out here looking to deliberately cheat. And, like, throwing the book at these guys is, like, is, I don't think it's necessarily the right approach, especially on this one in races. Like, cause, okay, yeah, we've seen a lot of qualifying hijinks with these guys in the past, but we don't normally get that on race day. And most, for the most part, these guys are pretty well behaved. And race direction needs to step in when it's really necessary, like, like with Canet earlier this season. So, for me, I, I just don't understand where the stewards are coming. I think the stewards have made a mountain out of a molehill now. They've set a tricky precedent to keep mm. following as, as we go from race to race. Exactly. It's like we're basically now going to be watching races. Anytime someone goes off the track or cuts a corner, we're instantly going to be thinking, well, how much time is he going to get for that? Uh, and I don't think that's the way any of us want to be watching um, motor races. So, yeah, as you say, they, they've set a very dangerous precedent here. And it, it made it, it was heartbreaking in the sense that Fabio Di Giantonio, who's been close on a number of occasions to winning a Grand Prix and not quite got over the line, looked like he'd finally done it uh, and was visibly in tears after the race and understandably so. And, and for me, in his interview with Neil Hodgson, handled it way better than any of us would have done uh, after the race. Oh. He is such a mature young man. He handled it remarkably well, I've got to say, um, mm. under those circumstances. But also, Dre, um, because when you look at the final lap of that race, tactically, he had judged it perfectly. Yeah, he nailed it. He, he he caught them. He caught he caught the rest of the leading group napping. That's what he did. He got out there. He he, he took the race by the scruff of the neck in, in the final sector of the race, and he, he had a clear victory there as Bezeki and Martin are at sixes and sevens trying to recover for second. DG had it in the bag. He like like tactically wise, he was inch perfect. Um, so. I, I do not... It, make, it makes it doubly heartbreaking for DG because he had, he had completely earned that victory. And a guy that has been winless in the past, um, you know, it's, 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 it's a shame. It's a real shame because he had done everything right. He'd done it the hard way. He had fought his way from the midfield to get into the front of the pack. He, he, you know, he'd led over the line comfortably by a good second and a half due to the incidents around him. But he kept his nose clean around all the other top tier riders. There was quite a high level of attrition at the front in this race. Mm. There was a number of incidents there, but DG kept his head. He got into the front. He bummed the hard work. 
and it's get, it gets ripped off him from the bullshit penalty. It's, it's it, it just makes it doubly tragic in the end because DG completely earned it, and his his, his emotion and, his, and this just just being completely distraught um, after it ended was was entirely justified because that was that was a robbery that race direction that had carried out that day, and he just he deserved better than that on the day, and um, he's, he's only got a fourth to show for it now. Um, it's not. It's not terrible for the sake of the championship, but he would have—I'm sure—he would have absolutely loved that first win. I hope he wins at Mugello. I really hope he wins at Mugello. Um, but it's, but it's, it's going to be second last year. It's going to be—it's going to be one of those classic Moto3 bonfires, isn't it, at Mugello next weekend? Um, oh yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that on next week's show. Um, there was one of the—you mentioned the attrition and the incidents. There was one other big one on the final lap at that final corner, um, which was kind of triggered by Gian Antonio's brilliant piece of opportunism to take the lead with a corner to go. Um, as Bezeki and Martin came together, the high side of Bezeki, which dragged Martin down. Um, and dreadful luck for both of them, really, because Bezeki had, until that point, driven a near-perfect race because every time someone had a go at him, he just took them straight back again and controlled the pace of the race brilliantly up the front. And Jorge Martin, who just continues to be the victim of other people's incidents. It's unbelievable bad luck. Like, as I said before we went on the I think I think Jorge Martin had uh, driven like I, I think he'd just driven and crashed like a truck full of mirrors uh, in a previous life. I just don't know how he gets he gets this unlucky second race in a row. He's been taken out of a race by somebody else's actions. Um, a real shame for Martin, who again was again in the leading pretty much the whole way through. Another stonking job in qualifying, um, his tenth Moto Three pole position already. Um, his his overall raw speed is unlike anything I've seen in Moto Three to date. His his, his his sheer ultimate pace is 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 unbelievable. In races, he keeps getting punched in the mouth, um, figuratively and literally in this case. Because again, Bushecki, um he high sides it coming out of the penultimate corner, and again, Martin's got nowhere to go. Um, it's just it's just a completely unfortunate accident, and that just happens in Moto Three sometimes where. One guy goes down, and you got five guys trying to get out of the way. Um, it's unfortunate, but it is what it is. Um, it's a real shame because I think I think Martin's overall pace and performances do not reflect his position in the championship right now. I think he's I think he has been the best guy on paper so far this season, but he's had a good chunk of points ripped out from underneath and from other riders' mistakes, and that's a real shame. But for you, it is. And from Bezeki's point of view. Um comes out of it with no points but from what he did in that race Dre from the pace he showed from the pace his motorcycle showed the KTM particularly its top end speed down down the straights um, I think he's he's shown us enough not just in that Grand Prix but in the first five races to suggest that he's a championship contender and he's here to stay this year yeah he's a savage um, like yeah both Martin and Bezeki like we, we weren't really talking about him so much in testing. He, he was a bit of a surprising name to have up there. It was like, oh, okay, he's up there. That could be interesting. But no, we're, we're thinking title contender here. Like, he's, it, it's, it's not a fluke anymore that he's 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 up there now. I mean, we, he was in the second group in Qatar. And, you know, he, he very nearly got his first W if it wasn't for Philip Hotel in, in RF riding the race of his life. Um, and again, this one here would have been second at worst, most likely. Again, he was up there all race long. Um, no convenient, like uh, no coincidence that he was in the leading group all race long again. Led several laps. Um, had you know had you know, had an easy second there before he just made probably just an amateur mistake. Just just tried a little bit too hard on the final corner, chasing something that probably wasn't there. 
unfortunately, probably a little bit caught cold as well by DG's past the corner before. Um, so yeah, it's he'll learn, and you know he's, he's still relatively inexperienced in this field. And um, Moto Three is becoming a sort of sport, right? It's like you're not winning it as a you're winning it on probably your second or third attempt now. Like you get a couple of seasons under your belt, and then you really start to to, to show your class. Um, and you know, but Marco Bezzecchi is really good right now, and yeah. you know he's, he looks like he could be another one fantastic VR46 camp of just young, ridiculously fast, ridiculously talented Italian riders. Um, he's looking, he's looking like he's here to stay, and he's he's been fantastic so far this season, and he's proving to be a top contender already. Yeah, we're half half an hour into this Moto3 roundup of the race last weekend, and we haven't really even mentioned the guy who ended up winning the race, um, which is which is which is a kind of a measure of how the race went. Um, mm. But <laughs> a remarkable result. This rider, his previous best result in his Grand Prix career prior to this weekend was eighth place. Um, right. And Dre, last weekend we don't really do race predictions anymore on this show um, before a race weekend, but. Yeah, because we're terrible at them. Um, but I think we could have probably, this time last week, we could have probably had about 15 guesses for this Moto3 race, and none of us would have said Albert Arenas. Um, I'd have, you'd have a better chance of me marrying Jennifer um, than me predicting that Albert Arenas would have won that race. Um, I'm that confident. Put you as more. I would never have guessed that in a million years. Um, but, you know, sometimes it, pay, it pays to be lucky rather than good. Um, given the context of the race and the penalties and whatnot. I mean, and he, had, he was... had qualified fifth and been in the leading group throughout, so he certainly had the pace to be up there. Yeah, he did. He did. Um, you know, it was never going to be a win. On, on... But again, sometimes it pays to be in the right place at the right time. Sergio Perez has made a career out of it. Uh, yeah. But it's, 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 just, it's just that sort of thing where, you know, sometimes you get a bit lucky when it, when it comes to the performance and the results and whatnot, and Arenas was in the right place the right time and you can't fault him for that it's you can only beat who they put in front of you at the end of the day and he kept his nose clean was in was in the good spot in the right time again as you say his pace was justified to be in the leading group all, all the way through never really would look like he was going to win it to be fair but again that's the nature of, of of gp motorcycle racing sometimes it pays to be in the right place at the right time and arenas was that and a a, a very nice to see uh, the angle and angle team back on the podium. Yeah, um, one so. two for the team with with uh, Andrea Andrea Mino, of course, a winner in his own right in Grand Prix. This time last year at Mugello, finishing in second. Um, and Marcos Ramirez inherited third despite crossing the line fifth um, because mm-hmm. two riders ahead of him had penalties. So that's back to back podiums for Ramirez and back to back KTM one two threes. Um, who KTM now not only lead the riders championship with Bezeki but lead the manufacturers championship for the first time in around two years. Um, as a result of their wow. win um, last weekend. So uh, congratulations to them. Uh, as we mentioned with Bezeki, KTM really look as if they have uh, bridged that gap between themselves and Honda now, um, which is good for the series. Um, let's take you through the result then um, last weekend. A, a crazy result that none of us would have forecast beforehand. Albert Arenas, the winner for the first time ever, from Mino in second and Ramirez third. Um, Fabio Di Gian Antonio, the moral victor, fourth. Um, Nicolo Antonelli, fifth. Um, after his post-race penalty had been applied. Uh, Jakob Kornfeil, having taken flight and landed back on Earth, finished sixth. Um, Tony Arbolino, seventh. Aaron Canet, who deserves mentioning because he came from the very back of the field um, after his uh, penalty post-Hareth. He came through to eighth, uh, ahead of Tatsuki Suzuki, ninth, and Jean Massia, tenth. Uh, the other points went to Darren Binder, eleventh. John McPhee, twelfth. 
Uh, he'd also started at the back of the grid, having picked up a penalty after Jerez. Um, Mikhail Yachenko, his Kazakh teammate, 13th. Dennis Fodgia, 14th. And one of the slightly forgotten disappointments of the weekend, the Jerez winner, Philippe Ertl, only 15th for one World Championship point um, from last mm. weekend. Championship standings look like this. Marco Bezeki still leads it. Um, he has 63 points. Now, in the uh, eight-year history now, seven-year history of Moto3, that is quite comfortably 63 points, the lowest points tally to lead the championship after five races um, that we've seen in this class. Bezeki on 63 leads to Gian Antonio by four points. Uh, Kanner is jumped up to third on 56. Uh, Martin is now fourth on 55, so eight points covers the top four, top four in the championship. Migno has jumped all the way up to fifth. He's on 45 points. Marcos Ramirez is 6th on 37, level with Antonelli. And uh, Philip Ertl is 8th on 36, he's level with Cornfile. And Anea Bastianini is 10th in the championship on 33 points. Um, so the top 10 in the championship is covered by 28 points um, at this very early stage in the season. Uh, Arenas, with his first win, jumps all the way up to 12th. He has 26 points. And of course, only one of those had been scored prior to last weekend. Incredible. MotoGP then. Um, much less happened in this MotoGP race, which is why we're coming to its second. Um, and unfortunately, well, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on which riders you're a fan of, um, we might well be covering MotoGP slightly lower down the ring order in the future uh, based on this weekend because the championship is already looking um, rather certain to be heading towards Mark Marquez once again. Now, we're in a very early point in the season, Dre. We're only a quarter of the way through the season. Um, with five of the 19 races gone. Um, but with a third consecutive win at a circuit that he very rarely wins, Mark Marquez is now 36 points clear at the top of the championship, which sets off alarm bells up and down the pit, up and down the paddock, doesn't it? What have you done? What have you done, MotoGP Fields? You've given him three straight wins on two of his weakest circuits as well. What is wrong with you people? <laughs> Do you want a championship or not? Um, no. Um... In all fairness to Marquez, he's been practically flawless since his head fell off in Argentina. Mm. Um, you can't argue with that. I, I, I did say in my written piece about this, I said it on this show, he recovers from things like this. He does seem to genuinely learn his lessons. And he's gone out and whooped the field since then in spectacular fashion. Um, it looks ominous. And I, I said on last week's show that if he wins this one, then this could be bad. And, 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 you know, it's it's like one of those medical dramas where you look at the screens and it's, Doctor, it's worse than I thought. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, 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 this is a disaster. Marquez had 36 points in hand and he had a donut in Argentina. He could have easily been 50 points plus clear by now through round five. Like, everybody else has had at least one major screw-up since the seasons began. Maverick Vinales is second right now. Only for the fact that he's not really fallen off, but he's just been equally mediocre in almost every race so far this season. Yeah, only one besides point. Argentina. <laughs> besides besides Cota. Um it's it's mental. And again, like what what can you say about Marquez that hasn't already been said? I mean, he's been fantastic. That was another fantastic performance. He outsmarted the field by picking the hard tire. The tire came to him in the second half of the race. He had another one of his spectacular saves at turn three off the radar, which we didn't even spot on the hard camera, but he, he loses the front in turn three uh, like he did in FP3, but he saved it this time round during the race. Pulls out, you know, three lap record, race lap record laps, like 32 threes in a row, and then that was it. He just didn't have an answer for it at that point. Um, it's... it's 
he's making them look stupid, Lewis. And 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 this and this is the guy that we we claim has a, has a, has a head problem sometimes. And everybody else around them is making is making mistakes, and Marquez is the one keeping his head all of a sudden. It's funny how these things turn out. Um, but uh, what can you say? Marquez is is doing Marquez type things at the moment, and he's looking like no. If he's if he's winning here, who's going to stop him for the rest of the season? Really? Like that's. I, I think we could be done here already, Lewis. Like I hate to say this after yeah, five I, rounds, yeah. but, but who's beating him right now? Who, who's making up thirty six points for Marquez? Exactly, and and, and and without without taking anything away from Mark Marquez, who's been brilliant, as as you say, the other guys seem to be not so much handing the title because I think he'd be leading anyway at this point. I mean, I was looking at the uh, championship standings at this stage last season, and Maverick Vinales, having won three out of the first five last year, um, was on eighty-five points at this stage of the season, leading the championship. Mark Marquez is on ninety-five at this point, so. Um, even if the other guys hadn't been making mistakes, Marquez would still be leading. But the fact that they've all made mistakes means that Marquez is 36 clear. I mean, from second in the championship all the way down to ninth, there's only 13 points covering eight riders. Um, so everyone else is really close, but they're all sort of equally mediocre, like you say. And Lamont was kind of a microcosm of that, wasn't it? Because there were two riders who both probably had the pace, the tyres, the tactics, the nous to... Maybe not beat Mark Marquez, but certainly run him close. And both Give of them hit the deck. Starting with Andre Di Vizioso, who we have to say, in mitigation and in defence of Andre Di Vizioso, this, by his standards, is a very rare error. It's a very rare error, but I think it'll be the say it was a very silly one. Uh, mm. That straight after he'd taken the lead. And the other, it's the second time in a row he's made a mistake. He's made a mistake trying to pass his teammate. Like he'd just gone past Jorge Lorenzo, in, Jorge Lorenzo in the fight in the leading group because he, Lorenzo had gotten the whole shot again. He's very good at that. He, the second row takes the lead through turn one. Marquez got bumped off a little bit because Zarco had the best case of late breaking I think yeah. I have ever seen into turn three. That was a sensational dive on the opening lap um, to to put Marquez down yeah. to thirty. I've, I've never heard Keith Ewan's voice go that high. Me never, like never. Zarco! Because <laughs> you, you were thinking it's going to be a spectacular accident here, yeah. um, but he stuck it. Uh, it. It was phenomenal. Like to take that bigger risk on the open lap was exceptional. But as I said, like Dovi had, had, had done the hard part. He got him past Lorenzo because Lorenzo's riding start at the moment is he's, he's going very slow on the apex. He's squaring off every corner he can um, to be defensive and whatnot. But yeah, Dovi had just found his way through at a, a, a turn three at the chicane, and next thing you know, he's 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 put it out of joint. He's offline, dirty part of the track. He's broken a little about five meters too late. He's he's tipped it in. He's lost the front, and, and down he goes. Um, yeah, as you say, it is a rare Dovi error. He, in all fairness to him, he doesn't do this very often. This he's good for maybe one or two of these a year tops. Um, um, but unfortunately, again, in the context of the championship, the one man you were hoping who was not going to win this race won it at a canter. And now Dovi is 49 points off the title. For Dovi, it's over. Mm. It, it, like, it, like, to put it into perspective, I mentioned it's like Marquez has got a 36-point lead right now. He's come back from bigger holes than this to win the title last year. Like, if you're giving Marquez a 36-point lead already, you might as well start the car and go home because, like, Dovi is not coming back from 50 points down to win this championship. Like, the Ducati is not that dominant enough of a bike, and it, it has too many holes in its game still 
to for me at this point for him to come back from that. So for Dovi, it was a cataclysmic error in the context of the championship. It's a shame it was it, in 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 real time and in a vacuum. It was a very simple error, but it's caused a, a massive, massive problem. And now he's staring down the barrel of the gun when it comes to being a championship contender this year now because it, it's looking like he really is in the fight. And looking at the the man who we were all sort of praying for, I suppose, all neutrals were praying for a Joan Zarco result um, last weekend. And to be fair, on Saturday, he delivered by putting the Yamaha on pole position um, with the fastest ever two-wheeled lap of Le Mans. Uh, it was an extraordinary atmosphere. Um, just for any any sports fans, just to just to be part of that atmosphere on Saturday as Zarco took pole position at Le Mans. Oh, um, that was it, was, it was an incredible one of the moments of the year so far. It was brilliant. Um, and he was right in the mix, wasn't he, on the Sunday. He was you know, right in that leading group, looking looking pretty good. I think he was running second behind Lorenzo. He'd just um, awesome. overtaken Marquez um, for second. Um, and he goes down at the at the Garage Ver corner. And um, as I mentioned at the start of the show, Dre, 100,000 French hearts broke uh, when Zarko lost the front. And I'm not going to be... Um, I can't help but being honest here. I think mine did a little bit too. Uh, um, yeah, I, I, I will see the home victory for Johan. His first crash, by the way, since he crashed out of the lead at Qatar on debut. Yeah, yeah, only a second crash in a race of his MotoGP career to date. That's 23 races, it's only his second DNF. Um, uh, a tragic shame for Johan on this one. I mean, going back to Saturday for a minute, the, the last two minutes of that qualifying session were magic. The two laps that Zarco and Marquez pulled out were sensational um just different different ball game sort of stuff from zarko and marquez zarko was absolutely wringing the neck off that yamaha m1 trying to get trying to trying to eke out every hundredth of a second he yeah, could we, often, we often talk about riders raising their game for their home races you could visibly mm. see it yeah Z like zarko's normally very smooth very precise he was wringing the neck of that I'm going to I'm going to either break the lap record or crush drive. And like even Marquez looked dead in the water, but he pulled out two tenths of a second in sector three. And we're like, well, wait a minute. Where's he gotten that from? Um, so it was an incredible qualifying session. And as you say, 100,000 Frenchmen losing their minds when Marquez crossed the line to find out, oh, he's only second. And Zarka, who, by the way, is that, that was his ninth straight front row start in qualifying. Now, so he's becoming... A, a, a real qualifying ace on a satellite bike. He's he's incredible at this now. Um, but as you said, just I, I think he just blew it really more than anything else. He, 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 I think his mind just slipped for a second. He'd gone in too hot into turn eight, and that's one of the worst corners in the world to make a mistake. It's downhill. There's a bump on the apex. We saw Cal Critchler have an enormous high side going through there in qualifying one um, in, in in that session and. You know, it, it put him in the hospital for a night um, with internal bruising and whatnot. But, uh, yeah, it, it's a nasty, nasty corner. And if, if, if you tuck the front there, you there is absolutely no way in hell you're saving that, um, even for someone of Johan Zarco's quality. So, yeah, a tragic shame. It was like seeing Ralph in The Simpsons, like the scene from The Simpsons where Bart plays a videotape and it goes, if you pin, if you play it in slow motion, you can pinpoint the exact moment. <laughs> yeah. He's like, and he'd see that, 
oh, and it's just like, no, Zarko. And trust me, I, it hurt me as well. Not because Zarko didn't win, but because my brother roasted the shit out of me because I picked Zarko to win that race. And I had a £10 bet with him on that one, and, and he chose Marquez. So I'm £10 out of pocket, and I'm devastated. Thanks a bunch, Johan. <laughs> yeah, yeah a, real, a real, real shame, because not only did it cost us the potential of a, you know one of the great moments of the season, see Zarko take his first win, and let's not forget, Hervé Poncherelle and Tech 3's first win, uh, in the Premier Class at their home Grand Prix. Um, and, you know, that combination, he's not going to get that opportunity again um, to win uh, at Le Mans because Zarko is, of course, departing the team at the end of this season. Um, and given that Tech 3 are going to be switching to KTM, they may well be, uh, they may well have to wait for KTM to reach this kind of level of performance before they can think about these kind of victories on home soil again. Uh, so, yeah, it was a real, real shame to see Zarko um, lose the front when he did. Um, and as I mentioned, not only did it cost us that moment, but it also cost us any hope of a close Grand Prix up the front. We briefly thought, um, not only did we think Petrucci might be able to have a run at Marquez, because he was kind of matching him for pace for the first half of the race, but there was a brief moment where Valentino Rossi set the fastest lap, and we thought, hang on, this is, this is we, we had this last year, uh, where, Valentino Rossi, where Valentino Rossi came on strong late in the race last year to pass Maverick Vinales until that happened on the final lap. Um, so we kind of thought that was going to happen and then Valentino faded as well and Marc Marquez in the end had a very very clear run to victory um, it has to be said we've spoken a lot in many many shows in the past about Marc Marquez so with all due respect to him a brilliant victory but we're going to talk about others because in yes. second place in a equal career best came Danilo Petrucci um, his first podium I'm thinking from memory of this season um, and obviously equals his career yes. best in MotoGP um, and with every passing race, given that Jorge Lorenzo's place in that team beyond the end of this year is looking increasingly fragile, Danilo Petrucci is tying this quite well, isn't he? He's looking the bookies' favourite just at this point for that second factory seat next year. You'd think. Um, he's, he's spearheaded the Pramac team. I know he's not been a million miles better than Jack Miller, who's been fantastic in his own right on last year's 17. But yeah, quite right. I, I do genuinely believe that he should be the front runner for that GPA team. He's, he's paid on his that dues, right hasn't he? Yeah, absolutely paid his dues. He's done what I think it's five years of the Pramac team now. Um, since he since he got his big break from his CRT days, he's been a loyal servant. He's never complained. He's been a a, a bright personality to have in the paddock. Uh, he's paid his dues, and he's had some spectacular finishes on on on, on often inferior machines. Um. He's on a GP18, sure, but that was, for me, as, as, as good a performance as he's had in the dry in his GP career to date. Um, did what he had to do, kept his nose dry, didn't make any any real mistakes, um, and just got on with it. And sometimes that's all you need to do sometimes. His pace was great. He was he was, he was was a fair match for Marquez for a good period of that race. Um shame the soft deteriorated, and again, the hard of Marquez just got into play as, as the race went on. Um... But yeah, like Petrucci just was just fantastic. You, you, you could not have asked for any more over over the weekend. I mean, he was he was fast in qualifying. He got onto the second row of the grid from I don't know first row because I think he was third, wasn't he in qualifying? He was, yeah. But, yeah, from Q one as well. So the extra experience, um, yeah, extra experience probably in the extra track time probably helped him in the so. Yeah, just a, a phenomenal weekend when Petrucci, for the first time, maybe all season, felt like a proper frontrunner from start to finish, um, despite the not-so-great times in the FP3, which was absolutely manic anyway. So, 
yeah, again, Petrucci, fantastic performance. He, I, I, I think he should be on the factory seat alongside Dovi next season. I think he's the guy. I think he's a great rider. I think he's a great personality. Um, and just overall, just doesn't make very many mistakes. He's just the right level of aggressive, and he makes it work. And that was a great performance from Petrux and a, a very deserved second place. Yeah, I, I like that. He's just the right level of aggressive. Try, try saying Alicia Spargo or that. Um, <laughs> but um, but no, I agree with you. And um, and yeah, it's it's a rider and a team that are doing a tremendous job so far in 2018. Because if you look at the championship standings and scan down to see where the various Ducati riders are. The top two Ducati riders in the championship are Daniela Petrucci in fifth and Jack Miller in sixth. Miller finished fourth last weekend, by the way. He said, I think, I think he used the phrase, it was his most complete weekend um, for both rider and team so far. Let's not forget, he was on pole and finished fourth in Argentina this year, um, earlier in the season. And it has to be said, obviously, we view Petrucci moving to Prague as a promotion, and it is. Um, because, sure. of course, it's got, the, it's got the resource and the manpower that comes with the factory team. But it has to be said, Dre, on results and performances so far this year, Pramac are embarrassing their factory counterparts. Yeah, the, the two leading Ducatis in the championship right now are the Nilla The factory team, while well, Orge Lorenzo had another whole race, started well, faded through the pack, eventually finished a mediocre sixth, which is not what they brought Lorenzo in for. And Dovi, like, well, to be fair, he was unlucky in her ref, but made a silly mistake here and now uh, well, that could have been another 20 plus points thrown away from Dovi for, due to a silly mistake and yeah you know he's never gone particularly well around, around America for example or Argentina either so he wasn't he wasn't good there and that was a race that Jack Miller could have easily won on, on the right day and if the stewards had any brain cells as to what was going mm -hmm. on or how to organize that race um so yeah the the standout Ducati so far for me I'd argue he's been Jack Miller on the GP17. Um, he's on last year's Ducati, and he's been Mr. Consistency. This was his eighth consecutive top 10 finish going back to last season. So, like, Miller has become just the go-to excellent rider um, of, you know, of the season, and Petrucci's been great in his own right, but it's the Pramax that have taken the headlines, and justifiably so. Yeah, and Pramax and Ducati are third in the team's championship at the moment. Um, they have 103 points. They're only 21 points off the lead of the team's championship at the moment, um, which is led by Repsol Honda, purely based on what Mark Marquez has done for them so far, it has to be said, um, given the fact that he's got um, three quarters of their points. Um, Movistar Yamaha are second on 115, and then it's Premac on 103. The factory Ducati team are sixth at the moment in the team's championship behind Tech 3 and the Suzuki X-Style team. Um, so as much as they're struggling, the Premac team are kind of um, pulling the slack at the moment for that Ducati operation. Um, let's talk Yamaha because also with Jean Zarco out of the running, it was all left to their factory team um, to try and score their points, which is kind of really what they're there for. But they've been kind of relying on Zarco so far this year for a lot of their results. Um, and to be honest, Dre, around a circuit which is up there with Yamaha's strongest of all on the calendar historically, it was another disappointing weekend for them. And really, they were owed to another Valentino Rossi rescue mission on a Sunday. This is becoming a bit of a pattern, I'm afraid, isn't it? Um, yeah, it's like, if you're Yamaha, I know they seem to be very happy with Rossi on the podium, but I, I'm a glass-half-empty sort of guy here, and I say, you guys dominated this race last year, completely. Mm. No one was in the same postcode as you. It was a Yamaha. It should have been a Yamaha 123 if it wasn't for Rossi's own rider error last year at the, in the penultimate corner, basically. Yeah, it's like, if you're not winning here, you're not winning anywhere. 
Right. Like, this is their arguably their strongest track. They've won seven out of the last ten at Le Mans before Marquez this weekend. Like, like Jorge Lorenzo had six top-flight victories around this circuit. If anyone knows how to get the best out of it around here, it's Yamaha, and they were nowhere near. Like, Rossi tried. He had that nice little fastest lap moment in the later periods of this weekend. Oh, hang on. Maybe Rossi might come into play here. He did. That, that was just that was him at the limit. Simple as that. And he faded after that and, you know, just took a pretty conservative third. And if anything, Miller was actually catching him towards the end of that race, but ran out of time. Um, but, yeah, just just not good enough at the moment. Um, it's 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 alarming for Yamaha. Again, we're now up to 15 consecutive races since their last victory of any kind. And if, you, if you're going with Maverick, specifically, he's now gone a full calendar year since his last victory. And that was at this very track last year. And, and Maverick himself was 17 seconds off the win this year. How on earth are you that backwards in the space of a calendar year? I do not understand what's going on in that team. There is something fundamentally wrong here. If you're finishing third and seventh at your strongest track, then something is badly wrong. Yamaha's got to do something radical and quick. Otherwise, they're going to be completely out of this championship. Mm, I, I think I think they are already. I mean, they are the nearest yeah. challenges in the championship. I mean, if you're purely basically on points, I mean, Yamaha riders are second, third, and fourth in the World Championship at the moment with Vinales second, Zarco third, and Rossi fourth. Uh, but I don't think I don't think Rossi and Vinales at any rate have the, the bike to make those points up. They're, they're in that position through largely through consistency. I mean, Rossi scored in every round apart from the one we all know about in Argentina. Um, Maverick has scored in every round, but um, I, w- I want to talk about Vinales because you, you almost you did him a bit of a favour there by saying he was, he was actually 23 seconds off the race winner um, last weekend. And, and yeah, but the 17 seconds, I know where you, I know where you got that figure from because we Maverick Vinales can, as much as the team is struggling, Vinales cannot use his team's underperformance or his bike's underperformance as a way of masking his own because he was. And this is where the figure was. He was 18 seconds behind his teammate last weekend. Oh, um, wow. Which, which yeah. is, I mean, we've said on previous occasions, and I know you've used the expression, that Maverick's ceiling appears to be much higher, but his floor is a lot lower. And when Yamaha are appearing to have more bad days than good, that spells trouble for Maverick Vinales because he never seems to come on strong or even get into his rhythm until halfway through a Grand Prix these days. Let's make a point here as well that Maverick was meant to be Maverick was brought in to be the Marquez stopper. Let's let's not beat around the bush here. He was he was brought in to be the guy to take Marquez head on when Lorenzo left that team. Like and Maverick has not delivered. He's he's had three race wins since he joined that team in twenty three now. And Maverick was terrible. And it, it's not a good sign when he said after the race in, 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 into the media, he said, I was deliberately trying to crash the second half of the race. So he basically said, I, I'm, I, just, I just don't care anymore. Like, I'm just, I'm just going to try and crash at every corner, try and ride beyond the limit because he just didn't care anymore. And it was another case of Maverick fell down the order at the start, but then clawed his way back up a little bit towards the end. He's done that a lot in Qatar this season as well, where he had front run in pace, but was completely terrible in the first half. And, there's a lot of talk from David Emmett and a lot of dissension in the camp that, you know, potentially him and his crew chief are on the brink of a big bust up because they're not trying anything radical to try and you know, to try and get him up into play. Uh, but yeah, I've used the expression before and I will say it again here. I think Valentino Rossi is the better guy on a bad day 
I think Maverick, when the bike is working, I think is a little bit better than Valentino, a little, little bit faster than Valentino, because I think Valentino's raw pace is not what it used to be. But Rossi's racecraft is better, and his knowledge of the bike is better. And if the bike's having a bad day, yeah, he seems to be able to then... ride around problems. Not only in terms of how yeah, he rides the Maverick. bike, but also, also mentally, he seems to be able to just get his head down and get on with it. Uh, and, and that that's my point really about Maverick Miales. It seems that whenever he has a bad race, he's pointed about how much the team is struggling and how poor the bike is. But have a look at yourself, Maverick. I mean, in, in Qatar, he was only sixth. He was three seconds behind his teammate. Um, in Jerez, he was seventh and five seconds behind his teammate. And even that in a MotoGP race, that's a long time. That's a big, that's a fairly sizable gap between two riders on equal machinery, three, three to five seconds. Um, you know, if, if Mark Marquez is winning a race by three seconds, we're saying he's won it by a mile. Um, and obviously yeah. in, in Le Mans, the gap was even bigger. It was 15 seconds. And I mean, Yamaha have signed this guy up for the next two years. And I, I wouldn't begin to suggest that they're going to give up on Maverick Vinales, but I think as you've kind of hinted there, I don't think he's the rider they thought they signed anymore. Like, let's put it to you this way. And be honest when I ask you this question. Is, is Maverick look more appealing now than he did at Suzuki two years ago? No. Case in point. And it's like if, if Maverick Vinales was the rider who's nearing 40 and Valentino Rossi was the rider who's in his early to mid-20s, I know which rider I'd be keeping long-term. You'd be keeping Valentino um, because he seems to be the rider who appears mentally stronger um, and just appears to be more consistent at the moment. And these these criticisms we're having of Maverick Vinales, and this is what concerns me, these criticisms we're having of Maverick Vinales are criticisms that you could level up Maverick Vinales, you could trace them back right the way back to the start of his career. Maybe this just is Maverick. Is this just a guy he is now? Is this, like, is this just a guy with just, just ingrained mental weakness? I don't know. Um, it's If I have to ask this question, if you've got to ask this question, then it's not a good sign. No. He's 23 years old now. This is his third. This is his, his fourth season in the top flight. No matter which way you slice it, he's got 60-plus races under his belt now. He shouldn't have an excuse um, at this point. And... It's it's not good enough. Like like if like look at what they lost in Jorge Lorenzo. Lorenzo, say what you will about his temperament and his chemistry with Valentino. He was a race slash championship level rider. One of maybe only two dudes who can give Marquez a fight over an entire season. And he's now gone and Maverick is not Jorge Lorenzo. And now Valentino Rossi's gotta lead the team. And Rossi's got problems of his own. He has not got the outright speed to win Grand Prix anymore. And I don't care what anyone tells me. If, I don't care how much yellow you dress me up with, <laughs> right? No matter which way you slice it, Rossi cannot win races consistently anymore. He's good for two wins a year now, tops. The last time he, he was relevant as a title contender was 2015, and he won four GPs that year. And that wasn't enough because Lorenzo had seven underneath him that season. He's not going to win you six GPs a year anymore. Right now, when Rossi wins, it's a special event because it doesn't happen very often. Um, so with, with Rossi spearheading your team and he's fundamentally flawed as a rider, Maverick might have even bigger problems. Like I said, when the bike is working, Maverick, I think, has more raw speed than Valentino does. But as he, as I've also mentioned, his head goes. when like when, Whenever he's in a bad situation, he doesn't give a shit. Like, it's... it's 
like he said straight up in his own words, he did not care about the second half of that one. He didn't, and he didn't and care. When you are in a position, and, and this is perhaps where Valentino Rossi's role in this team might well prove quite important. Not that he'd really want us to see it this way, but if you're Yamaha and your team that's essentially trying to develop your way out of a hole, Maverick Mignard isn't really the rider you'd pick, is he? No, he's not. And like that was a leash spagger when they were Suzuki together, and he got the boot out of that team, and like, for better or worse. Um, so but Valentino's Maverick. the one that seems to have been sort of suggesting all of these potential fixes for the bike, and right. you know, and, and I just don't think Maverick Yales seems to. I don't think he's wired that way. I think he's just a kind of a, just give me the bike and I'll go and ride it um, kind of rider. And when he doesn't have the bike as he wants it as you say, his head goes and he goes missing in races. And you know, that's two seventh place finishes on the bounce room now um, to go with the sixth he had in Qatar. Um, he has had that one podium, as we mentioned. He was second in the uh, Grand Prix of the Americas in Cota. Um, but that's really the exception that, uh, to the rule at the moment this season for Maverick. Um, and both rider and team have problems. Uh, make no mistake about it. And of course, the next Grand Prix is Valentino Rossi's home Grand Prix, where a poor race weekend there will not go down well. Uh, if that Yamaha is uncompested because there'll be 100,000 in how, wearing yeah. yellow turning up to try and watch their rider compete for the win. Uh, how mad are 100,000 Rossiites going to be in yellow in that weekend when their boy doesn't end the podium, which yeah. I think is quite likely. Yeah, they're going to be they're going to be livid. Uh, they're going to be quite miffed with that, aren't they? Um, they're going to be calling Felix Davis's head. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but I think I think there's probably few within the team that are already calling for that. Um, but yeah, let's run you through the result then um, from the French Grand Prix. Marc Marquez, the winner for the third race in a row, uh, from Daniela Petrucci second. Valentino Rossi did get third for the team uh, with Jack Miller fourth. Pedroza in fifth. Um, he's still not exactly 100% fit, so well done to him for that. Um, Jorge Lorenzo sixth. Um, as Trey mentioned, started well, faded, very Jorge Lorenzo. Maverick Vinales is seventh. Now, Cal Crutchlow's eighth deserves mentioning because he had that horrendous high side on Saturday in Q1, which saw him drop to a great height on his hip. Um, came out the next oh. day and finished eighth, which was a great result under the circumstances. So Cal deserves a nod for that. Alessio Spargo ninth for Aprilia, ahead of Alex Rins, who was the sole Suzuki to reach the flag. A Yanone crashed out on lap one. Um, and didn't obviously reach the checker flag as a result. Uh, Paul Spargo for KTM 11th, ahead of Hafish Sayarin, Frankie Morbidelli 13th, Bradley Smith 14th for KTM, and Takaki Nakagami takes the final point um, in 16th position. Championship standings then, Mark Marquez is the clear championship leader now. He has 95 points. That's 36 clear of Vinales, who, despite all the criticism we've handed out to him, is second on 59, um, ahead of Zarco 58, Rossi 56, Petrucci and, uh, is on 54, Miller 49, Yunone 46, and then Crutchlow and Davizioso 46. It is so close from second back to 10 uh, in the championship. Unfortunately, though, they're all fighting for the silver medal by the looks of it. Danny Pedrosa completes the top 10. Um, he is on 29 points um, overall. Um, Moto2, then, we're short for time, so pretty much um, very little we can add to this, Dre, other than another Francesco Bagnaia masterclass. Get the metronomes out, kid. Peko Banya has done it again. Yeah, I, I, I can, I, I'm going to keep this brief. That was a dominant performance from start to finish pretty much all weekend. You know, it's a good sign when Peko Banya, who's never had a career pole position before, got his first career pole position and led from the front and never really looked like he was going to be beaten. It looked like Alex Marquez was always riding above the limit to try and keep up. As the race went on, Marquez just seemed to fade and fade. And again, you know, almost like a carbon copy of a, of a Cota earlier this season. 
Once Banyaya hits the front, he's incredibly hard to beat by the looks of it. Mm. Um, just barely put a foot wrong all race. Didn't look like he was ever going to lose that one. Um, and made it look very comfortable in the end. A, a, a masterclass in, you know, metronomic good race pace riding from Beko Banyaya on this one. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant ride for Banyaya. He's moved 25 points clear now at the top of the championship. A uh, couple of riders elsewhere in the race deserve mentioning, deserve praising. Um, uh, despite um, his second place, Alex Marquez, we've kind of seen that before from him. What we haven't seen before, though, is his teammate up there, Joan Mia. Uh, his first Moto2 rostrum in third, and as a result, he is highly in demand. It looks like Suzuki have won the race to uh, get his signature um, on their bike. Uh, if you believe what you read, and um, who wouldn't believe the brilliant work of David Emmett, um, Honda also were keen on Joan Mia. Um, mm. as were Ducati, but it looks like Suzuki have won the race to sign him um, for the next two years alongside Alex Rins, um, which of course has knock-on effects for the likes of Andre Inone and Jorge Lorenzo. But Mir with his first podium in third. Marcel Schrotter, career best in fourth um, for the Dynavolt team. His teammate, though, Xavi Fiache, taking fifth. Um, now, he had qualified second, but a fuel pump problem before the race started meant that he didn't make it out of the pit lane before the race, before pit lane closed, which meant he had to start from stone last on the grid. 35th, in other words, and came through to finish 5th. What a ride that was um, from Vieja to finish 5th. Ahead of Miguel Oliveira, 6th. KTM looking like they're going to have to do this the hard way again if they're going to win this championship with Oliveira now 25 points off the lead. Uh, Romano Fanati um, taking 7th in that Grand Prix. Um, that is, believe it or not, his first points finish of the season. He has shown quite promising... Uh, performance at various stages this season, but those were his first points um, of his rookie campaign. So well done to Fanati. Um, seventh for him. Um, just behind him in eighth was um, the uh, speed up of Fabio Quartararo. Um, so at least the French fans did have that to cheer for. That's his and speed up's best result of the year. Brad Binder took ninth, and Stefano Manzi from absolutely nowhere um, took tenth position for Suter's first points. Of 2018. The, the other points positions went to Hector Barbara, Andrea Locatelli, Sam Lowe's 13th, Simone Corsi 14th, and Kyril Idan Pawi uh, in 15th to take the final point for Malaysia. Uh, Banyaya, as I mentioned, leads the championship now. He is a full race clear of Miguel Oliveira in second. It's a 25 point championship lead uh, for Peko. Alex Marquez is up to third. Lorenzo Balasari, who crashed out of this race, is dropped to fourth. Pessini, who did the same, drops to fifth. Vierke is up to 6th, Joan Mir 7th, Schrotter 8th, Brad Binder 9th, and Ika Lequona, who was another rider to crash out of this Grand Prix, he's 10th overall on 23 points. Now there was one other race to take place at Le Mans last weekend because the CEV Moto3 Junior World Championship was supporting the French Grand Prix last weekend. Um, and that produced its fourth different winner in four races so far this season. Um, this time it was the Spaniard Alej View for the Marinelli Snipers team. Uh, he took the win ahead of Raul Fernandez, who extends his championship lead. Fernandez is now 20 points clear of Manuel Pagliani, who could only manage sixth. Uh, View's up to third. Um, he's on 49 points. That's 29 off the overall championship lead. Um, Yuki Kuni, who's a Japanese rider for the Asian talent team, he finished fifth and is fourth overall in the championship, um, just ahead of Somkyat Chantra, the Thai rider, who finished fourth in Le Mans. Uh, third in that race went to Ai Ogura, who wild-carded uh, last weekend uh, at Hareth, on the previous Grand Prix, should I say, at Hareth. Uh, he got his second podium in a row. That moves him up to seventh overall in the Junior World Championship. Uh, their next round um, is on the 9th and 10th of June at the Circuit de Catalunya. Um, now, Catalonia has also been playing host to some MotoGP testing this week. Maverick Vinales actually topped it 
Um, but we'll wait until there's yellow before we start to use phrases like light at the end of the tunnel and improvement for Moose Yamaha. We want to see it at a race weekend first. Um, but they'll take encouragement, yes. I'm sure, from that uh, as Vinales topped the test. The main headline, though, to come from that test, Dre, was a crash for Tito Rabat. Um, now, um, I guess one thing we can say is the new um, safety provisions that have been put in place at Catalonia certainly worked. Um, because they were running the new track layout that has been brought back in for this year. Essentially, they've reverted to near enough the layout we had before, that tragic accident that claimed the life of Louis Salon um, a couple of years ago. Um, now, Tito Rabat says he is going to attempt to race um, at Mugello next weekend. But uh, yeah, given the accident he's had and given the injuries he suffered, a muscle rupture, grade three uh, of his fingers... Um, you know, he's, he suffered some pretty, pretty gruesome injuries, but thankfully no broken bones. So Tito's going to attempt to ride, but pretty gruesome accident, pretty gruesome crash, a fireball that uh, saw Tito yeah. about testing Catalonia come to an end. Absolutely, um, brutal one. Um, but like I said the, the safety, the safety, the safety provisions that came into play certainly because uh, they got a test and it seemed to be a successful one. Because, yeah, like. Luckily, um, Rabat didn't go careening into the wall um, with following his bike that, again, turned into a fireball by the end of it. It was luckily one of those incidents that looked a, a bit worse than what it actually was in the end, thankfully. Um, I think Rabat is a crazy person if he attempts if he attempts to ride at Magello with his arm in a cast. Um, mm. um, like Tito, please don't. Um, it's the worst I can give you on that one. Um, it's, it's not worth it, mate. But that was a nasty one. Luckily, again, it, that, that seemed to be the worst of it. Thankfully, um, but yeah, safety division got a safety division got a big test there, and it, it came through in flying colours. Thankfully, luckily only minimal damage to 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 Tito on that one. And again, I wish him a speedy one because that was a nasty one and a nasty arm break by the looks of it. But uh, uh, hopefully, nothing too serious. Yeah, we wish Tito all the best. It looks like he is going to attempt to ride next weekend, um, but we will tell you uh, more on that and update you on next week's show. Um, more injury news, and this one appears a little more serious. We we told you at the end of last week's show about Shaky Burns' accident um, at the uh, Snetterton BSB test. Um, now, he's undergone surgery on Monday of this week, the 22nd of May. Um, and I'll quickly read you the statement, the medical update that was provided by BYZ Ducati. Shane remains in the Norfolk and Norwich University Hospital where he underwent an operation that has successfully stable, stabilised the fractures in his back. Uh, he will continue to receive further treatment ahead of an extensive recovery period from the operation and his other injuries. The BSB medical team have been liaising with the hospital regarding Shane's progress and would like to thank Mr. Cook, Mr. Lutchman, Dr. Fletcher and all the staff at the Norfolk and Norwich University Hospital. Um, now, obviously, Drake goes without saying, we wish Shaky Byrne all the very best in his recovery. Um, but the more and more we read this, especially when we read the words extensive recovery period, um, this accident seems much more serious than any of us thought at the time. Yeah, I'm no doctor, but it, like there was absolutely zero word about whether about where he's coming back, and that is uh, never a good sign, to say the least. Um, by the way, I'm looking at it, I'm thinking season ender, um, because like that intensive care, extensive recovery period. I mean, I don't want to speculate too hard, but that probably is going to involve trying to walk again because that's a back and a neck injury and those are like there's no such thing as minor neck surgery let's put it that way no. oscar angle he'll tell you um but um it, it seems like it was a lot worse initially I, I know his his wife petra was very very troubled by it on twitter at the time and understandable that was that's her husband going through that obviously 
Um, so yeah, it, it seemed by all accounts it was a lot worse than what was initially feared. Um, again, I can only wish Shaky a, 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 a speedy one because he is the face of British Superbikes without any question. It's not going to be quite the same without him in the, in the meantime. Um, and I wish him the very, very best on, on because he is a bit older than the average bike rider. He's in his 40s. Um, it's probably going to be a little bit longer to recover in the first place, um, let alone something that's as serious as this, where he's had to have like multiple surgeries to try and fix the problem. And, now talking about a, a, a lengthy recovery period. So um, I sincerely hope that um, he's able to make a full recovery, which he is, which is, which is, which is good news um, in terms of a quality of life standpoint, first of all. Um, whether he can ride again, we'll have to wait and see in, in the coming weeks. Um, but again, I'm just glad he's okay. I'm glad he will make a full recovery, which is always good news. Um, how long he's out for, it remains to be seen. It's a real shame for the championship. It's a as a sports fan, you don't you don't ever want to see a, a, a reigning champion go down like that. Um, and it's a shame for the championship. Dot dot dot. Sort of. Mm. Um, if if um, from a from a competition standpoint, I'm sure we'll get to in a sec. Mm. But shaky, as, shaky as, burn. He is, of course, as you mentioned, he is the the face of British Superbikes. He's also been um, one of the faces of Eurosports World Superbike coverage. Um, so far this season, and in a moment, you're going to hear from the voice of it um, because as a look ahead. Uh, to this weekend's British round of the World Superbike Championship and a progress report on the season so far. Greg Haynes, the Eurosport commentator for, Euros for World Superbikes and indeed the World Superbike correspondent for MCN, joins us for a chat about all things World SBK. He'll join us right after this. Listening to Bike Live here on Motorsport 101, and let's look ahead to this weekend. It is the British round of the World Superbike Championship. So much to look forward to this weekend, with the top three in the championship, of course, all being British, and the top two in the current British Championship also appearing as wild cards or one event riders uh, this weekend. So a lot to look forward to. And we're approaching the halfway stage in the season, so it's about time we had another progress report with the voice of the series for Eurosport and indeed the World Superbike Correspondent for MCN. It's Greg Haynes. Welcome back, Greg. Thanks very much, Lewis. Hope you're well. Uh, excited about the weekend ahead? Yeah, we're looking forward to it. It's going to be a good weekend. It's It's been a good old season so far, hasn't it? The last time we spoke to you, of course, was shortly following Thailand, where uh, Jonathan Ray had just taken the championship lead. He'd taken his first win of the season in race two um, of Thailand that weekend. Since that point, though, the pendulum's really swung, hasn't it? Kawasaki have won five out of the six races since then. Jonathan Ray winning four of those five. Um, just how have they done it? <laughs> it's a good question, actually. And your point there, winning five out of the last six, really puts it into perspective, isn't it? Which is quite scary. Really. That's two doubles in a row, including Imola, which, of course, the last couple of years have been complete dominance from Ducati and Chas Davis. So how have they done it? I think the simple answer is... And it's not a simple thing they've done, but the simple answer is that they have the most resources. I think they're the smartest team on the grid at the moment. There's no doubt about that. And with Jonathan Ray and Pereira either side of the garage in particular, 
They know exactly what they need and require. They're very quick at adapting. They're very quick at learning. Critically as well, of course, they had that test, didn't they, at Bruneau? Mm. And they clearly knew what they wanted from that test. And furthermore, they got it as well. They were able to use that brake cooling duct as well, which I personally feel has been more significant than a lot of people think. Mm. Um, because Kawasaki were the ones who had the brake cooling troubles. They were the only ones who really had problems with the brakes. And somehow they've managed to get around the system and almost convinced the organizers to run that brake cooling duct. I'm not saying that's exactly what happened, but that's what it feels like, isn't it? Because they were the only ones with a problem anyway. So anyway, who knows? But Tom Sykes did mention in his Imola interview after the race on the Sunday that he did not run that brake cooling duct on the Sunday and that he did feel it made a difference when Jonathan Ray did run it. So it clearly is a significant part. And at the same time, they're now finally getting their way around the regulations. have had to make some compromises which they struggled with earlier on in the year. At the same time, Lewis, I also think the Ducati is not where it should be because if you look at the race pace runs from Imola last time out, mm. not only was the Kawasaki matching its pace from last year and probably could have gone even quicker, but the Ducati was actually slower. It was slower in race pace than it was yeah. 12 months ago, and wow. that's why they've had to do this emergency test last week at Magello. That, yeah, that is kind of crazy. I, I remember watching race two, and then you know, obviously Chaz fought as hard as he could to try and stay in front. But uh, once Jonathan got up the front, he's, he's the only man in the 46s. He broke Chaz, and that was the end of it. I mean, you you, you, you kind of crossed over into what, what my next point was going to be, was that, as, as you mentioned, the last time you were on here, it was just after Thailand. And after that race, we, we saw Jonathan struggle. I mean, Sykes had a technical problem, and Jonathan was struggling under break-in. Oh, yeah, one of his one of his sloppiest, I'd argue, races since since he's joined the team, and yeah, the, the Kawasaki's won five of the last six. And I remember after Thailand, like Jonathan had a, had a slim championship lead, but you had Ducatis in second, third, and fourth. Like obviously, both the factory boys at Aruba and um, Xavi Forest, who seems to be having a bit of a breakthrough season so far this season, is in the top five a lot more consistently. Where do you think has it gone wrong for Ducati? Because I mean, they, they were bright on Jonathan Ray's neck after Thailand. They were breathing down him there. With obviously Melandri had the double win at Phillip Island, and Chaz is Chaz, and Forrest is, is really coming to play as a true potential race winner. But um, since then, it's just, it's just seemed to have fallen apart for Ducati a little bit. Now, Sykes is back in the mix for second again, and Jonathan's just put his foot down. He's now got 47 points in hand. So where, where do you reckon it's gone wrong for Ducati here, Greg? Well, I mean, it's a bit embarrassing, isn't it, really, for everyone else? Jonathan Ray Brilliance has got him to where he is, and his team and his group of guys around him. But let's be honest, this is embarrassing for everyone else. They're coming with these new regulations. Like you mm. just said, they were so close to them, weren't they? Um, and, and quicker than them. And all of a sudden, it looks like 2017 again, doesn't it? Or even 2015 in some ways. Yeah. Um, it's a bit of a mess for everyone else. What's gone wrong? I don't really know. And the worrying thing is I don't think Ducati really knows either. I'm sure they probably do now. But at Imola, when I was doing the MCN interviews, I went down into the garage, into the hospitality on the Sunday night. And everyone, not quite naturally, nobody was really in a mood for talking. They were all busy chatting yeah. away among themselves. Uh, everyone was very low, very down. Of course, Melandry had just been taken out by Michael Vandermark, so that was another reason. But Xavi Forres and Melandry both said after the Saturday race that they were struggling early in the race on a heavy fuel load. I don't know why, though, because they hadn't been earlier on in the season. It is a bit of a mystery, and I hope they've sorted it out for Donington. But, you know, you've got to think Donington's going to be a Kawasaki track anyway. Yeah. They've got to close it up, though, because Jonathan Ray's got that lead again, and 
you know, that must be so demoralizing for everybody else. It's, it's, it certainly feels that way. I'll have a piece about this on Motorsport 101 up in the next couple of days or so talking about this. But, uh, yeah, it, it, it has to be the moralizing, knowing that Ducati haven't really... They're at sixes and sevens right now trying to figure this out, and and they've just slipped, and Jonathan's gotten away again. I mean, another factory I want to talk about real quick here is, is Yamaha as well, who... When these rule changes were announced at the end of last season, I think everybody with great big neon lights were pointing down at the Crescent Racing team down down the paddock like hang on <laughs> like we're, we're trying to balance the books here and the Yamaha are the ones that probably were the closest factory to the big two on the outside looking in and I, and I remember on the, on this very show I said well there's no reason Yamaha can't win races now with this new changes and they are still not really where they want to be I think Alex has had a pretty poor run of form the last two rounds only only twice in the top 10 that's the bottom end of that scale really in the last two weekends I mean like if if it if it's not so great at Ducati, what must the feeling be like at Yamaha right now, knowing that uh, you know Vandermark and Lowe's are probably not as close to the front as they probably were hoping to be with these regulation changes? I think it's fair to say they're definitely not as close as they were hoping to be, and it's difficult to actually talk about Patty Yamaha this year without being overly critical, isn't it? To be honest, but the fact mm. of the matter is they're in their third season back. Uh, don't get me wrong, by the way, because the riders are great riders. The team is a good team. There's some great people in that team, and they're pushing so hard you would not believe. However, the results are not coming. That's the simple fact of the matter. I hope that doesn't sound too harsh, but it's their third season back. If you look yeah. at everything the team themselves, Paul Denning and everyone else, was saying coming into the season, they were definitely aiming for race wins and multiple podium finishes. The win still has not come. Let's hope it does. I, I personally felt, I don't know what you felt, guys, but I thought both of those riders would each be winning at least two races this year. I didn't go yeah, too hard. Yeah, I just think um, it all pointed towards Yamaha gaining the most from the regulations. At the same time, you've got to... Well, exactly. You've got to bear in mind as well that obviously Kawasaki are running on a MotoGP budget. They've got all these engineers back at KHI and all over the place, even during the races. So... They're very much ahead in terms of that. But at the same time, you would have expected Yamaha to be closer, wouldn't you? At least up there with the Ducatis. And uh, it's, it's not happening. They must all, to be honest, be scratching their heads thinking, what on earth are we going to do? And I think Tom Sykes as well, really. He had a fantastic ride at Assen. He's clearly got his head in the right place now, which he didn't this time last year. He said now quite openly, you know, he's split up from his wife, Amy naturally as you would expect and i can't imagine what that must be like it must have been a terrible time um and it still must be a very hard time but he's got around that but then again in terms of track performances imola wasn't particularly great for sykes really was it i was watching it back the other day um and really let's be honest he lucked into that second race podium because he was behind vandermark and melandry when they had their incident so yeah. it's the typical classic scenario jonathan ray even on a bad day he's still finishing second or third whereas everyone else is fifth or sixth. And that's why you've got these difference in points now. What was it? 47 points after after eight races. That's a big gap after eight races. Interesting in, mention, in, Sykes, as well. Of course, the rumours started around him all the time of, of him potentially going to Yamaha as well. I mean, just quickly, while we've got you here on that, I mean, do you see any particular great changes into next year? Because the, there are all sorts of rumours that started floating around last weekend. Of perhaps Jonathan Ray making a switch going to Ducati. Of Sykes perhaps jumping on the Yamaha, which of course he ran um, back when Spees was his teammate and won the title. Um, a lot of contracts are up this season. Do you see any great swapping around? 
Well, it's an interesting one because I was I was reporting some of these for MCM because, of course, you hear these things doing the rounds, but you can't generally just go writing and talking about them straight mm. away. But of all of them, of all of them, I personally feel the most likely of all of them is Sykes to Yamaha because uh, if you, you talk to people in the paddock, people who you feel would know and have got various connections to Tom Sykes and people he knows, and that seems to be the one that seems to be gaining the most momentum. There was another rumour going around as well that Yamaha... You know, are they more likely to want to keep Lowe's or Vandermark or both? We don't know. The, the truth is no one knows for sure, do they? But um, Sykes, I mean, from Kawasaki's point of view, why would you not want to keep Tom Sykes? That's mm. one way of looking at it. Mm. Um, you know, they're doing, he's doing enough to help them win the team's championship easily. Oh, well, it's more difficult this year with the Ruba Ducati being closer. But the last few years, they've done enough to win the team's championship. He's been there. On the podiums, Jonathan Ray is running away with the riders, but they've won the teams, they've won the manufacturers, they've won the riders. What more could they want? You could argue it's good for the team not to have two riders continuously fighting each other. Uh, it's just one less headache to have to think about. I suppose at the same time, Kawasaki might be thinking in the back of their minds, and this is motorcycle racing, if anything were to happen to Jonathan Ray, and we know riders occasionally do get hurt, you never want to wish it on anyone, but it can happen. They must be thinking, well, we do need somebody else there who would win the title for us if that wasn't the case, if you know what I mean. Um, it's a tricky one, isn't it? It's a tricky one. But I reckon of all of them, the Sykes to Yamaha is probably the most plausible. There's then this room of Alex Lowe's maybe switching over to Kawasaki. There's also the Ray to Ducati rumour doing the rounds. I spoke with Paolo Ciabatti about that at Imola. Um, and I think it's very clear they and every other team on that grid would be interested in the services of Jonathan Ray. Really? Uh, <laughs> exactly. So, you know, who's going to say, no, we're not, we're not interested in Jonathan Ray. That's the point. Mm. But, um, you know, he, he's very keen, though, he says at least, to retain Davis and Melandra and that they'll start talking in the next two or three weeks with their respective managers. But who knows? The, the rumour that, that initially started going around a few weeks ago is that, and this was as far back as probably about Thailand, actually, inside the paddock was that Ray may be considering Ducati because I think what Jonathan Ray does want to do, whoever he's going to be with, is once he does stop riding, he wants some good career options. He wants a good package of, to be an ambassador for a brand, sure. to, you know, to be able to... He's talked about maybe running his own Supersport 300 team. He said that very openly in the past when this class started. Um, right now, though, you'd have to think, as James Hayden said at Imola in the commentary... Kawasaki would be mad to let Jonathan Ray go. And in many ways, Jonathan Ray might be a little bit mad to move from a comfortable situation. He's closer to the end of his career than the beginning. Not saying he's going to be retiring anytime soon, but he's certainly closer to the end than the start. So I don't know. But then again, you just never know. Sometimes riders do have a change of heart, don't they? Who would have ever predicted Fogarty would have gone to Honda? Who would have ever predicted Michael Schumacher would leave Ferrari? I mean, these things can happen. True. That, that's 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 the beauty of the season right there for you. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's let's get into let's get into World Super Sport right now. And um, wow, it's been it's been incredible um, this, this season so far. I mean, it, 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 all you have to do is take one look at the standings. to top five separated by just twelve points. But uh, before we get into that, we have to talk a little bit about Keenan Sofogolu. And <laughs> I have to ask, as as a broadcaster. Just how ridiculous was those last 15 minutes before the race? And obviously, Charlie Hiscott getting arguably the scoop of all scoops that Keenan yeah. wasn't actually going to race. 
Yeah, well, first of all, I thought he was fantastic. I mean, it was brilliant that Charlie spoke to him because it's not often, actually, that I'll go out there and say something like, we were the first to get that. But I did feel, I've got to say, I felt quite proud of that moment. Humble brag, humble brag. (laughs) British Eurosport and also for Charlie Hiscott himself because we were the first broadcaster in the world. And I don't just mean us as the broadcasters, but all of us watching back home as well, all the viewers. We were all the first to know, even before... Possibly the team, or certainly some members of the team, certainly before the organisers, because they were even putting a graphic up on the screen during the warm-up lap that he was about to start his last race. So they clearly didn't know either. Uh, so Keenan hadn't bothered to tell them. So it was. <laughs> but at the same time, I was sitting there in the commentary box with James Hayden, and and when we're doing um, when we don't have a full outside broadcast, for example, Donington, Renault will be one of these. And we also had one at Assen this year. That means the whole of the Eurosport team are there on site. Right. When it's presented from either the studio back in London or from one of the BSB rounds, I actually, believe it or not, cannot see our output. So I can't see Charlie's grid war. I can hear it, right. but I can't see it. So I was listening and, um, you know, I was shuffling around in the commentary box, getting my papers ready, getting things ready to go on air in the next few minutes. And, and I heard Keenan say, I'm not going to start the race, but I sort of couldn't believe what he'd said. <laughs> <laughs> James Hayden, did he uh-huh. just say he's not going to start the race? And James wasn't sure either. So then there was a bit of communication going on behind the scenes with everyone else back in the UK, our production team, to check, you know, did he actually just say that? Or is, he, is he not starting? Is he starting from the pits? What's he doing? Part of me was a bit disappointed because I thought I've spent all week getting all these numbers and stats ready and yeah. everything. <laughs> to talk about Keenan Sifogli. Uh but then at the same time I thought you know what actually you've got to respect him for that haven't you and, and you could say can you imagine it's a bit it's a bit morbid to think like this but can you imagine how terrible it would be to go there to Emma and suffer some bad accident mm. oh, it just oh God, would yeah. seem yeah it would just seem so unnecessary wouldn't it at that stage in his career he said as well but I don't know if this is more keen than just being keen and that he didn't want to interfere with the championship battle I can't imagine he would have given a damn about the championship battle if he felt he had a chance of winning that race. Uh, he was prepared to go out and win. He said he'd made promises to the president of Turkey and to his mother. As um, you do. You know, as you do. <laughs> On Mother's Day as well, it was, he said, didn't he? But um, I don't know. You have to think, though, the team might... What was the team... What was Manuel Pichetti actually thinking? Mm-hmm. You know, he could have had Sheridan Marias or somebody else on that bike, and he only had one bike in that race in the end. He could have had two out there for his sponsors. But I suppose, on the other hand, the value you get from Keenan Safoglu and all the publicity they got around the whole event, Keenan with all the riders greeting him, going up onto the podium for his speech, I suppose that gives you a lot more publicity than just having another rider in the race. Um, yeah, I was a bit disappointed he didn't race again. I, I never believed I would have been commentating on him in a race again. So to have him back was one thing. But everyone did say, what's he doing? He's, he's making a comeback to come and retire. It did seem a bit strange. Um, it's a shame a great career has ended in that way. But to be honest, so many have, haven't they, over the years? Yeah. So many of the greats have had their careers ended by injury. Um, and in the end, he's gone out on a high. He, he is getting back to full fitness now. And he's going to be able to enjoy the rest of his life. He'll still be around with Toprak and many other riders. Uh, there's a few of them already around, aren't there? And doing very well. Uh, but what a guy, what a guy. He, he reminds me of um, Ethan Senna, actually, in the sense that, he, you know, he will give you an interview and he'll say exactly what he thinks. He has no shame. He doesn't care what other people think about him. 
And he does have that racer's mentality of if there is a gap, I'm going for the gap. And if I didn't go for the gap, I wouldn't be a racer anymore. And if we crash and go off, we crash and go off, which you could say is even more extreme for Safoglu than it was with Senna, considering yeah. these are motorbike riders and not car racers with more protection around them. Um, yeah, incredible. I, I think personally he's a fantastic ambassador for the sport. And I, I think it's a bit unfair some of the sticky gets for why did he stick around in Supersport? Why didn't he move up? Okay, Supersport is a feeder class, but it's not quite so much of a feeder class as something like Supersport 300 or Moto3 or Moto2. You know, it's, it's a bit like you could say, is touring car racing necessarily a step up towards Formula 1? And well, no, it's not. It's two completely different things. So I think what he's done over the years, <laughs> some of the moves and some of the memories, and he was so hard and determined to get through. All that mattered was that race, wasn't it? And the stats speak for themselves. Is he the greatest of all time? Well, comes down to opinion, but I think, well, for me, super sport-wise, he definitely is. Yeah, for, for, yeah, I, I completely echo that sentiment. For me, the undisputed greatest on a super sport ever. Um, just, uh, I think the air and center comparison was actually very apt. I think that's, uh, I think that's, I think that's the nail on the head there. I think that he reminds me a lot of that, um, you know, and the good and the bad that comes with that, and that's just what made Keenan so great. But um, talking about a 2018 championship for for just a minute here as well. I mean, as mentioned, the top five separated by just 12 points and if you know if there's one positive upswing to Keenan retiring as well I mean I think I think it's fair to say right now and I think I don't think it would be unfair to to, to throw Rafael De Rosa in this as well I think we've got an elite class of six now in world supersport in a post Keenan world which is for me incredible and I feel like supersport's got on a, a very nice shot in the arm um what have you made the championship so far because I think it's been brilliant it has been absolutely tremendous, hasn't it? There's a bit of criticism going around about it being a bit of a international R6 cup. But actually, <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, yes, and in some ways it is. If you look at the championship, of course, the Yamaha does have the advantage. However, I will just add there, when Keenan Safoglu has been around, he has put the Kawasaki on the front row of the grid. He absolutely. did it in Australia. He did it even at Imola, even though it was a strange rain effect. I mean, I still can't quite get my head around the fact Keenan Safoglu came back. And qualified on the front row of the grid. Yeah, yeah that's insane. But anyway, <laughs> you just can't believe it. It's just almost unbelievable. But um, anyway, Keenan Safoglu on the Kawasaki, Rafael De Rosa with an MV Augusta. Now he's got his head around the bike and knows the team a bit better. He's doing great things with that motorcycle. Um, but then it's fair to say a lot of the top teams are running the Yamaha. So yeah, there's more Yamahas up there. But I don't think it means necessarily others don't have a chance. I think the Larini Honda team are underperforming they should be higher up than they are mm. uh, but anyway do, i mean okay does it really matter there's always going to be somebody who's going to be criticizing the championship for one reason or another particularly members of the motor gp press who shall remain nameless but, um, <laughs> oh no <laughs> yeah let's not let's not get into that but anyway um the yamahas do have an advantage but it is the newest bike on the grid and it is a class that is running production-based bikes so in some ways it seems correct, doesn't it, really, that the manufacturer who's still running a new bike should have it up towards the front of the grid and the older bikes are further back. That's the, that's mm. the simple fact of the matter. Um, unless you do get an amazing team and a rider like a Keenan Safoglu or a DeRosa who can really, really perform on their machinery. But what a season. I mean, I just don't know what to expect. Uh, Mayas and Yamaha had some troubles. Karakasuda as well on corner exit, they were saying. They'd been testing recently. Cortese has been an absolute revelation. He's really Absolutely. flying where others have struggled. 
Uh, Imola was a bit of a struggle, but then again, it was his first round at Imola, which is such a difficult track to learn and so different to anything he's probably been used to in the past. Um, I'm sure I'm missing names out here. Joel Cusel, of course, winner of the last two races. It's funny, isn't it? He hadn't won a race since Magni Corps at the end of 16. Didn't win one last year on the Honda, uh, although he was not far off the championship win last year. If you look at the points, despite not winning a race, he was very consistent. Um I'd like to think it would be Joel Cluzel's year, just because I said that coming into the air. I think he's got an opportunity. But without doubt, he's having to ride harder than the others, isn't he? With the way he's got that bike at the moment and that team, they're lacking in something. And the last two races, he's definitely put on an unbelievable defensive ride. Mm. Asen Imola. But he's been very honest about it. Um, In fact, there's a Eurosport podcast coming up this week I, I spoke to Joel Cusel and he's very honest about it and he said you know we can't we're having to defend at the moment but he's using his experience that the others around him don't have in that class to be able to keep the lot behind him basically and then Krummenacker as well <laughs> two stunning rides through the field in the last two races he's Keenan Safoglu's favorite for the title so Keenan must know something we don't because although he sort of psychologically crushed Krummenacker when they were teammates a couple of years ago he clearly knows there's something good in Kromanaka because he's tipped him for the title. Um, but above all, guys, I don't know what you think, but I just think... I mean, let's hope the championship comes down to the last race and the way it's going, it looks as though it, it certainly will. Let's hope it does. I think it will. Mm. Uh, but even if it doesn't, the racing is just tremendous, isn't it? The quality of the racing is absolutely nose to tell from lap one all the way through to the checkered flag. And it just makes for brilliant TV as well. Yeah, we've spoken before that we think pound for pound is probably not a series at the moment that's that's delivering consistently like Supersport is. And, and Supersport yeah. 300's doing pretty well as well, isn't it? I mean, with, with three rounds in to that championship, we've had three brilliant races. Um, we've had the madcap final lap at, at Assen with, with several riders <laughs> crashing oh, out yeah. of the lead uh, over the course of the final lap. We then had the chaos behind the race leader at Imola with, with accidents involving the terrible crashes that involved Kellinin and... Um, and, and Shotman and Gonzalez further back as well. Thank goodness that all three of those are, are making recoveries. Um, and a championship led by the brilliant Anna Carrasco who continues to make history everywhere she goes. I mean, what a series Superspot 300 has been so far. And I noticed as well so far that we've had lap records set. We've had fastest laps and pole laps that have been three, four seconds lap quicker than last year. I mean, on every front, the class is moving forward at a pace, isn't it? Oh, definitely. The first thing I'd say is I've never known... I've never known a championship category with as much bad feeling in the paddock right now, believe it or not, than we've actually got in Supersport 300. Wow. Um, it's a difficult one to talk about without having to overly criticise anyone in particular, which would be unfair, actually. But last year, they got the parity spot on, in my opinion. You always get riders complaining and you get people coming up to us knowing we're working on the television uh, and I don't mean that in a boastful way. I just mean it in the sense that people sometimes come up to us because they know we can relay messages to people quite easily through the television. Um, so you often get riders coming up to you moaning about this, moaning about that. His or her bike has an advantage or top speeds this and acceleration that. Um, so last year I felt was a very, very good, well evened out championship with the Hondas, the Yamahas and the Kawasaki 300. This year you've got a Kawasaki 400 some people are saying, should they be allowed to run the 400? Well, I don't think that's a problem, really. That's their latest bike in the range. None mm. of the bikes are 300s anyway. The KTM is a 390. They stayed out last year, if you remember, until a wild card at the end of the year. 
uh, to develop the bike better, which I think is fair enough. They didn't want to come in and underperform. Now they've come in and they're very quick. The Honda is a 500. Uh, even the Yamaha isn't actually a 300 itself. I think it's 321cc, something like that. But the rules even it out. Last year it worked perfectly. This year it hasn't worked and it's not working and there's no way around it. I think the may, the biggest problem I think this year has been that they did not have an official pre-season test before the season started. Some people in the paddock are saying they've probably spent so much time focusing on the new Superbike rules. They sort of you know, turned a blind eye in a way to Super Sport 300. Whether I'm right or wrong there, I don't know. But whatever the reason, they've clearly not got the balancing rules right. But they're getting better. Um, you know, I don't think we should expect the Hondas to be near the front now because there's only two or three of them on the grid anyway. So, you know, we can't just expect them to be at the front because a lot of it is team and rider dependent too. There are more Yamahas up there now. But believe me, some of the rumours in the paddock, people are saying... Uh, some of those Yamaha teams that all of a sudden got near the front at Assen, they're just throwing caution to the wind and running illegal engines because they're thinking, what well, if we don't run the illegal engine, we're down the back anyway. So even if we get found out and disqualified, what the hell, it doesn't make much difference. Um, nice. <laughs> you know, you've got this real caution to the wind attitude, but I don't know whether that's true. Or that might just be other rivals saying that to try and cause a bit of a, a situation. Remember last year we had people being disqualified for mm. tampering with engines and Scraping the paint off the wheels. Yeah, and all I mentioned that. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's um, there, there's a lot of that going on. But I have to say, I think, I don't know what you guys think, but I think Anna Carrasco, clear and simple, was the best rider at Imola. I mean, yeah, at the end of the day. you race by 14 seconds, do you? No, you don't, because people are saying, oh, you shouldn't be winning by that gap in this category. Well, Well, no, it's designed to be a close category. But at the same time... There's only one thing that controls when you leave that pit lane in Super Bowl 2, and that's your brain, isn't it? You can't Absolutely. control. It's not your bike that decides when you're going out. Those other 11 riders, ridiculously, all went out together. But more ridiculously than that, they were coasting. They were slowing down on the racing line. They were holding each other up. Um, Anna Carrasco it, went it out. Like, it, it, yeah, it looked like a Moto3 quarterfinal session there, and I don't mean yeah, that in a good way. They, yeah, Moto3 is just as bad sometimes, isn't it? I remember commentating on one in Malaysia in 2014, and we had a crazy situation like that. But it still goes now, doesn't it, sometimes? Well, yeah. but, uh, I think Carrasco was the smartest person out there. She went out half a lap later. Um, I thought it was a little bit unfair, in my opinion, that she got given a grid penalty as well. Um, because when she started to catch that pack, because they were slowing each other down so badly, waiting for her for a tow, uh, she started to catch them. So she backed off. But I don't think Anna Carrasco was doing anything dangerous because she was on track on her own. The problem is the rules are the rules. And, you know, it says if you set a certain number of sector times outside 110% of the quickest, you're going to be penalised. But it just made the whole thing look like a bit of a joke, didn't it? That people can be given, given grid penalties. And because everyone else has got penalties, still start on pole position anyway. Uh, but I still think Anna Carrasco did the best job. She got the start down to a T. Everyone else was messing around. She used the advantage of her bike. I mean, what can she do about it? Is she supposed to say, oh, well, I've got a bike advantage. I'm going to slow down and give everyone else a chance. I don't think so. I think um, without sounding very, the danger of sounding sexist here, guys, as well. And you can tell me if I am. But I think a lot of the boys are thinking, oh, we've been beaten by the girl. And I know that sounds very sexist of me, but believe me, that's what a lot of the boy racers will be thinking. It, it, um, it would not surprise me. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and I know, I know, I know. Some of them are thinking that because you, I've heard people saying things like that in the paddock. Um, they shouldn't, of course, because Anna Carrasco has every right to be there, just as everyone else does, and she's proving it because she's leading the world championship. 
I think it's actually tremendous. Mm. You always have your conspiracies around saying, oh, well, the organisers want the female winner to be up there uh, because it's good for the championship. And you can certainly see that side of the argument. But it is still great for World Superbikes in general and the brand. It's great because this is actually generating a lot of good publicity. You know, remember last year after Portimao, even the New York Times ran a story on Anna Carrera. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's a very, very difficult one to judge. Um, and it's impossible, actually, to know precisely what's going on. It must be a real difficulty for Scott Smart and for the organisers who are doing their level best to make it as equal as possible. The problem is, in a class like this, can you imagine everything was equal? Just imagine, in theory, everything is completely equal but some rider is still struggling because he's not riding right or he's made a mistake. They're still going to argue that the parity's not there, aren't they? So you're never, ever going to get a situation where everybody's happy. It's more embarrassing, in fact, isn't it, to be at the back of the field in a class that is supposed to be so equal. The only way you could really change it is by having a one-make series. Yeah, yeah, but even, exactly, then, yeah. get, even then, you'd still get people complaining. Yeah. So generally, I think it's been great. That last lap at Assen that you mentioned before as well. I mean, <laughs> I've never, never seen anything like, like that in my it. life. Never seen anything like it either. Three <laughs> leaders all come off in completely separate incidents in the yeah. last half of the last lap. <laughs> I mean, and I, 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 I counted this yeah. four as well because Valle got got taken down by uh, by Edwards' crash, so he would have been the he would have inherited the lead had he not been taken down. It was. It was a bizarre final lap, and uh, I felt sorry for the for the kid Muffles at the final chicane as well, losing his brakes when he he had a home win potentially just the other side of that chicane. Um, but let's look ahead <laughs> to this weekend then. Before we let you go, it, it's, it's so much to look forward to this weekend. First of all, the wild cards because we have not only do we have three British riders leading the world championship, but we have the riders who are first and second in the British Superbike Championship both appearing as wild cards. Uh, Leon Haslam and Bradley Ray, as well as Mason Law and Gino Reed as well. Um, it has to be said, who are both wildcarding as well. Um, Haslam, we know what he's capable of around Donington, both in the British Championship and the World. He was second here last year as a wildcard for Pacetti. Um, but how much are you looking forward to seeing this year's double winner, the Milky Bar kid Bradley Ray on the Suzuki, taking on the best in the world in a World Superbike race? Oh, I think it's really, really good news that it's happening. I think it's great for Bradley Ray. It's great for BSB. It's great for the Hawk Racing team. And it's great for World Superbikes as well, because this is what World Superbikes used to be about all the time. We used to have um, wild cards turning up at the British round, uh, the Australian round, the Japanese round. We had some really amazing wild cards. I mean, I remember back in the races at Sugo back in the day, You'd have Carl Fogarty and then the rest of the regulars fighting away for fifth, sixth, seventh places. Well, four or five wild cards who nobody knew disappeared off into the distance. It's quite strange <laughs> in some ways. But it is great. It gives these riders an opportunity to come into the world championship um, at a relatively, a relatively decent budget. I mean, it's not cheap. Believe me, it is not cheap. But they have an opportunity to come in and show their skills and show what they can do. It's good exposure for the team. You'd also have to say for somebody like Gino Rea, it's an extra little bit of testing as well. And I mean that in the nicest possible way. Yeah. Um, they get some extra running when testing is very limited, uh, as well as the OMG team getting to live the dream, if you like, and getting a World Superbike wildcard. Very quickly then reeling through off, you know, who's there, what can we expect, what should they expect? Well, Gino Rea is on his, his full BSB spec bike. He's got to aim for points finishes and no more than that, really. Same for Mason Law. Jake Dixon did it last year. There was a bit of attrition, but he was still up there. He was in the top 10, actually. He wasn't in one of those races. Um, 
Bradley Ray, to answer your question, he's on a full BSB spec bike. So no electronics, no traction control, no anti-wheelie. It doesn't mean he can't be up there, though. He's on a Suzuki as well, which I think is another great element yeah, for the championship. I, as soon as I read this, I got flashbacks of Kyle riding the Supersport race a few years ago. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Exactly. Remember that year? He came in. Luke Stabelford was in that race. They were right up there, weren't they? Um, I think Sam Hornsby was racing that year as well. He was up there. But Kyle Ride in particular, that's where Keenan Savoglu spotted him at the time, wasn't it? As a great talent. Um, they know the track, obviously. It's Donington. It's great, really. It's a bit of a fairy tale story. Bradley Ray doing the double first rounds of the year at BSB at Donington. Comes back to Donington a few weeks later as a World Superbike wildcard. Haslam is the one we should most expect to be challenging at the front of the race. But that's a completely different situation. He's actually running with one of the regular World Superbike teams with a fully World Superbike prepared electronic setup. Um, he's done Imola as well, which is good because last year he came straight into Donington. Haslam could be a real contender for a podium finish, I reckon. It's certainly top five. He should be up there. Mm. Um, in fact, I'm, yeah, I'm going to say he's going to fight for the podium. That's what I reckon is going to happen. Um, we will see what happens. Bradley Ray, what should we expect from Bradley Ray? Should, would we be disappointed if he didn't finish in the top five? No, I don't think we would be because, I mean, if you think about it at the end of the day, he's taking on the might of Ray, Sykes, yeah. Haswell, the Ducatis and the Yamaha. So I think he's got to aim for a, a top 10 finish, possibly even, I would say, a points finish. Bradley Ray shouldn't come away feeling disappointed if he's not in the top 10, I don't think. It's a very, very competitive grid. Um, it's just going to be great to see him there, though, and I think it's good for everyone involved. And we need more wild cards. It's good, and and, and a test for commentators as well to have Jonathan Ray R E A, Gino Ria R E A, and Bradley Ray R A Y all on the same grid of the same race. Um, which <laughs> will be, me uh, through that again. Yeah, we've got Jonathan Ray spelt R E A, Gino Ria spelt R E A, and Bradley Ray spelt R A Y all in the same race, um, which might well be a little test to commentate on. Um, for the graphics department as well to tell us who's who um but but for this weekend then i mean i have to say from, from my point of view and i think from a lot of people's point of view this weekend is kind of set up as a bit of a shootout a head-to-head between jonathan ray and tom sykes with it being such kawasaki dominated circuit and a sykes dominated circuit in recent years sykes is going for the all-time pole record jonathan ray is going for the all-time wins record uh very quickly do you see one or both of those going this weekend um, if I had to say right now, will they go? Yes, I actually, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go out there and say they will both go this weekend. We haven't had a poll for Tom Sykes since Australia, have we? I don't think. Let me correct me if I'm wrong. Um, gotta go. I mean, it's, even Jonathan Ray's beating Sykes regularly in qualifying now as well. Uh, but, but this is Donington. I reckon it's gonna happen. I think. You have to say there's probably more chance the win thing's going to happen than the pole record because one slip in qualifying and you've lost it. Mm. Whereas there's two races and Jonathan Ray's got two shots at it. But I do think they probably will both go this weekend, which seems ironic, really, doesn't it? It's the 30th birthday year of World Superbikes, the track where it all started in 1988. Um, home track for both of those riders as well. So it's going to be good. I just hope it gets as many people on the gate as possible um, to come along and see them and express their uh, their support for everyone racing this weekend. It's going to be a real good weekend. We're going to have a PTR concert going on at the Paddock Show as well. There's the Two Wheels for Life auction that's going to be happening. So there's plenty of stuff happening off the track. New look Donington Park. I suppose a lot of people coming along this weekend won't yet have seen the new facilities, the new cafe, 
and everything else they've put in at Donington, the new look of Donington in general. If you didn't go to BSB, people might not have seen that yet in the flesh. So, yeah, I'm going to say those records are going to go, which is quite a, a significant thing, isn't it, really? It's, it's not often you get new records like that being set. Troy Corsa had his pole record, his last pole in 2010. Bogarty obviously had his 59th in 1999. We've never had anyone winning 60 races. And it also obviously means that Jonathan Ray is getting closer and closer now to becoming officially the most successful world superbike rider of all time. He needs the win record to do that. He's very certainly going to get that soon. And then if he can get that fourth title, he's actually statistically more successful then than Carl Fogarty. I mean, it's amazing, isn't it, really, when you think back to just three years ago, Jonathan Ray wasn't a world champion yet, and now he's very much on target for four. Remarkable. It's absolutely remarkable, and he's nowhere near done yet, is he? I mean, it's yeah, it's been a fantastic season so far. We're approaching the halfway stage now of it. Uh, Donington Park this weekend. Um, for those listening to this podcast in the UK, not only is it live across Eurosport, but it's also live on Quest Free to Air this weekend as well um, on Freeview. For those that don't have access to Eurosport, um, Greg, many many thanks once again for joining us. Great weekend ahead, um, and we look forward to listening to you covering it all, and we look forward to hearing from you again later in the season. Yeah, thanks very much, guys. It's always a pleasure to chat with you two. It's uh, it's always good fun, isn't it? We have a bit of a laugh. And also, let's just remember as well, as far as I'm aware, and this could be the famous last words, (laughs) as far as I'm aware, the weather forecast is actually good this weekend. (laughs) No no snow this time, unlike unlike BSB. Uh, Oh, yeah, that was a chaotic day. But I'm sure, uh, no doubt about it, Dre and Lewis, you're going to be playing that back in if we do get a downpour this weekend. (laughs) Of course. You'll definitely be playing that back in. (laughs) <laughs> but yeah thanks again for having me on it's always good fun yeah unfortunately Greg we are going to play that in I'm afraid um, yeah Greg Haynes um, <laughs> giving us his uh, his Michael Fish moment so with that in mind Ray um, first of all huge thanks to Greg Haynes for joining us again and giving us absolutely. so much of his time the guy's an absolute legend um, but let's talk about that largely rain affected first day of practice um, in Donington Park um, that we saw earlier today first practice and second practice were both heavily affected by the rain um, and Jonathan Ray and Tom Sykes were first and second in one order or another in all three sessions today. Uh, more of them in a second, but as I mentioned at the start of the show, it's a bit of a BSB invasion this weekend um, because we have the four wild cards that we mentioned there with Greg, um, including the top two in the current British Superbike Championship standings, Leon Haslam and Bradley Ray, um, as well as Mason Law and Gino Rea. There's also one we didn't mention there because since we recorded that on Tuesday, Luke Moss has been drafted in. At the Pedicini Kawasaki team. Um, Skywalker's been drafted in there as a replacement for Yoni Hernandez, who's got visa issues. Um, the more and more we watch Luke Mossy on that bike, the more I start to think those visa issues were deliberate and of Pedicini's making. Um, I joke, of course. Um, but if we look at free practice today, beyond the obvious of what we saw with the Kawasaki's up the front, the headlines really have been made by the BSB riders because of... Um, Gino Rea, who was in the top 10 in the wet, obviously fell back in the dry. Luke Mossy, who only missed out on an automatic QT spot by four thousandths of a second. Um, right. But but two BSB riders did make it in. Leon Haslam, which isn't really a surprise, given that he's so experienced and so good on that uh, Pachetti Kawasaki. But Bradley, goddamn Ray, on a British Superbike spec Suzuki for the build base team. Double winner at this circuit earlier this year. Straight through to qualifying two. Is there anything more we can say about this amazing 21-year-old? We are not worthy. We are not worthy. We are not worthy. 
this, the Milky Bar kid is strong and tough. Um, this this kid might be the real deal. Um, easy to forget. He's still only twenty one years old. And uh, my word, this and uh, this is to put into perspective here. He hasn't got the world superbike, you know, mumbo jumbo electronics. He hasn't got that full on factory support that the really really big hitters do. Yeah, it's um, a British superbike in a world superbike race. Yeah, it is a BSB spec Suzuki, pretty much the exact same one he ran when he took the double at Donington. It's not as high tech. It, the budget is nowhere near as big as, as these big hitters. And yet Bradley Ray and a Suzuki were completely alien to the rest of the field because Suzuki has not run uh, anything near a full package. Um, you know, since Alex Lowe's left the Crescent team and they switched to Yamaha's a couple of years ago. Um, that's an unbelievable achievement from Bradley Ray to even make Super Bowl 2. He belongs. It's as simple as that. And, he is world and, you class. Know, he is world class. And if you stick him on, I can't even imagine what he could do with a world class package underneath him. Like this, this, this is nowhere near the full potential of what Bradley Ray could be on in terms of machinery. So the fact he's done that and put it ninth on the grid is incredibly impressive. Um, like looking forward to seeing how he gets on in in in, in the race. Like, it's going to be fantastic. Um, so yeah, we'll have to we'll have to wait and see. But um, God, super impressive for Bradley Ray once again this season. He's having an incredible calendar year so far. Absolutely, and yeah, I, I don't think based on the projection of his career at the moment, I don't think it's going to be very long before he has a world class package underneath him somewhere. Uh, because this kid is unbelievable. You know, he is a world champion of the future in my mind. Um, and, and it just goes to goes to emphasise again. And we'll talk about this no doubt on next week's show when we give a full review of everything that happens in the races um, at Donington, which are still to come as we speak to you. We're recording this on the Friday night of the race weekend. Um, but Bradley Ray ninth, uh, Leon Haslam up ahead of him in seventh. Um, he is on a full world superbike spec bike. Luke Mossy eleventh um, for Team Pedicini. He was only four thousandths of a second off knocking Marco Melandri out of Q two. Uh, today um now mossy's on a world superbike spec bike for the pedicini team but he only found out that he was going to be riding that bike 24 hours prior to this um and of course has never ridden that bike before in world superbike specs so for him to be that quick was incredible um we have mason law who's not exactly been a front runner it has to be said in world in bsb this year he was 18th ahead of the likes of jake gagne andre yezek chavi forres michael ruben rinaldi and jordi torres um, some of those had problems, it has to be said. Uh, and Gino Rio, as I mentioned, was top 10 in the wet and obviously fell back when it dried out. These guys doing their championship proud and proving once again that this British Superbike Championship, it's as close to world class as you're going to get in any national series. Absolutely, yeah. It just says, you just say the domestic series is every bit as impressive in its own right. They are doing... A fantastic job over there in that series. They deserve all the plaudits in the world right now. And yeah, this weekend right now is showing the class of the field. The invasion is coming over and they're and they're upsetting the apple cart. Um it's it's unbelievable. Um and you know, Stu Higgs has got every right to brag a little because right now his series is is doing an incredible amount of work. It's it's certainly it's 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 certainly out there just uh you know, again, just 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 taking names and you know just getting up there on the level. It's doing it's doing really really great, and, mm. and that's, that's that's good for everybody. And that that's that's hardly a bad thing. So, looking forward to to, to seeing the series continue to grow in that sense. Yeah, in terms of what we're going to see up the front then this weekend um, in World SBK, um, it's of course the the area that this Grand this this weekend takes place in is Castle Donington. Um, so I guess the question is, who's going to be the king of the castle this weekend? It's probably going to be someone wearing black and green. 
Um, it's really? quite fair to say because first of all, it's my point worth making. The Ducatis had an absolutely absolute train wreck of a day there on Friday at Donington. Melandri only just scraped into Q2. Um, Chas Davis had a crash in the only dry session that we got, and as a result, ended up 16th and with a pretty poorly left leg. Um, and Xavi Forrest had a crash, which left him 23rd, and also in Q1, uh, along with Michael Ruben Rinaldi on the other Aruba bike. Um, so Ducati just do not look as if they have the pace or the consistency, um, or the riders, as it seems at the moment, to have any kind of play of winning either race this weekend, even allowing for reverse grids helping them out. They look substantially slower than the Kawasaki's. Um, and if we look at the dry track time we got today, right? Tom Sykes and Jonathan Ray were, as I mentioned, first and second in one order or another in all three practice sessions, wet or dry. And on both counts in pre-practice three, their dry pace was on a another level. It was several levels higher than anything else out there. The showdown that we kind of teed up there with Greg between Ray and Sykes. Ray, the king of superbikes. Sykes, the king of Donington. Looks like we're going to get it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be very interesting to see how this plays out. Sykes made it quite clear he was only at about 50% yes, um, today. He, he, he claimed he was not pushing. Um, whether that's just mind games or whether that's just Tom being Tom remains to be seen. We'll probably figure out more about that tomorrow for, um, for race one um, and whatnot uh, time of recording. But uh, yeah, Ray's race pace also looked superb. So... Um, it's going to be a fantastic, fascinating Grand Prix, uh, especially I think on Saturday tomorrow um, between between the two Kawasaki's. They look like the, the class of the field again, but uh, it it looks like it's going to, we're going to get those two at the front, and it's going to be everybody else fighting for the podium spot. So that's going to be very interesting indeed. Um, but yeah, it's looking like we're getting a Kawasaki. Yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be a it's a mouthwatering scenario, isn't it? A showdown between the two. We don't get many of them, given that Ray is so much better than Sykes everywhere else. So, on one on a, well on not one of on unquestionably Sykes' most favourite circuit, his strongest circuit on the calendar. Uh, what kind of race we're going to get between the two. It's going to be exciting to see. Um, we'll review all of this next week uh, here on Bike Live on episode 62. That will include all of the other classes that are taking place this weekend because it's all televised this weekend. World Super Sport. Um, which, of course, has um, the five championship contenders all on Yamahas. All of them, by the way, were safely through to Super Bowl 2 um, on Friday, despite the weather. Um, Super Sport 300 as well. Anna Carrasco has to go through Super Bowl 1. That's the headline of Friday's running um, at Donington Park today. So the championship leader has to go through Q1. Um, we'll cover all of this next week on episode 62 of Bike Live, as well as episode 141 and potentially 142, depending on how eventful... Um, the two duels in the motorsport crowns um, that take place on Sunday are, Dre. But um, day of classes, of course, is going to be a hoot. But whatever fallout there is, that will fall right into Motorsport 101's episode 141 later this week. It will indeed. Um, I'll be back for that one as well. Um, the, all the fallout from day of classics free. So that'll be the Monaco Grand Prix, um, Formula 1 and Formula 2 there as well. We had a fantastic feature race earlier. All, all hell broke loose on that one as Alex Albon and Nick DeFries hit each other in pit entry, leaving the way for Artem Markolov to win in dominant fashion. And Ralph Boschung got taken out by some special talent. Yes, um, some special talent indeed. Yeah, Lando Norris for oh, I'm going to try and pass him at the King Albert corner. Oh, wait, that's a bad idea. Oh, no, he's in. Um, Boschung wasn't at all salty on Twitter about it. Oh, oh no, no. Um, let, safe to say he wasn't best pleased. <laughs> and can 
And can you blame him really on that one? I can't. Um, to be honest with you, it, it was it was carnage to to say the least. Um, yeah, the quote was that was my podium today. Got taken out by the quote unquote super talent. Totally gutted. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, punches were not pulled on this one. Um, so to say the least. So all all the fallout from the feature and the sprint race tomorrow on that one. All the Formula One action from Monaco. Hey, we could be on for a Red Bull one too. Just what the world wants to say, clearly. Um, and of course, the hundred and second running of the Indy five hundred. God only knows what's going to happen during that. All the fallout will be right here on Motorsport 101. I'll actually put a bold gambit out there. Probably a double header. Just, just throwing that out there. So until then, yeah, episodes 141 and probably 142 as well. All that on Motorsport 101 next week. Yeah, as well as episode 62 of Bike Live. That brings us to the end of this bumper show. We've gone past the two-hour mark, but we hope you enjoyed our 40-minute sit-down with the Voice of World Superbikes. Uh, Greg Haynes. We thank him for joining us once again. He will most likely be back with us on this show during the World Superbike Summer Break. So you've got that to look forward to as well um, in July. Um, as I mentioned, huge thanks to him. Huge thanks to Andre Harrison as well for joining me this week. Huge thanks to all of you for listening um, as we looked back on the French Grand Prix weekend, which in Moto3 certainly jumps the shark. We will see you all again next week. Bye now.